theyeshiva.net. I was once in a big shul, and somebody uh, stood up to give a speech. And when he stood up, the whole shul emptied out. I shouldn't say the whole shul, but uh, a very big part of the shul emptied out. So he said, when he got up to the mic, he said, Now I understand our shtickle Gemara. The Gemara says in Baruch, Chavchas, that when Rebeleza ben Azariah became the Nasi, he became the leader, replacing Rabbi Gamliel. So Rabbi Gamliel had a policy that whoever's inside was not like his outside, wasn't allowed into the base medrash. So most people obviously were sent away. Blazer ben Azariah changed the policy. He removed the the, the Shemer HaPesach, the, the guard at the door, and he allowed everybody to come in. So the Gemara says, Ahu yoyme, that day, many new benches and chairs were added to the base medrash. The Gemara gives two versions, how many? But hundreds, 400, 800. So he said he never understood why the Gemara said, That day there were many new chairs, should have been there were many new people. He says, but now when I got up to give my shear, I understand why there were a lot of new chairs in the base medrash. This evening, what I want to do, Bezer Hashem, is answer a lot of questions. I took a lot of questions. I'm going to try to deal with each of them briefly and concisely. As brief as as concise I know how to be, which is not my greatest talent always. But try to respond to them. These questions, as you will see, are by definition extremely real, authentic, and many of them very personal, but I think apply to uh, many people. I have a very difficult marriage. I started to go to therapy because of my marriage. My husband refused to go to therapy. I asked him, why don't you ask our rabbi, our rav. The rabbi told my husband that he doesn't think he should go to therapy for marriage. I spoke to the rabbi, I called him, and I asked him why he refused, and he said that this is not an issue that requires therapy, and he would quit all the therapy. The problem is I'm married for 20 years. We went to many rabbis, They have not been helpful. This is maybe our last chance to bring this marriage to some place of peace. My husband refuses to go to therapy. He says, the rabbi says, no, I can't go. What is your view on this? It's an important question you ask. And the answer, I think, is very clear. There's a famous principle in Jewish law and halacha, that halacha kirav, 
Bedina or Kishmuel B'Mamoyna. Meaning, Rav and Shmuel were two of the greatest sages who debated many, many halachas. How do we decide the halacha? How do the courts decide? So generally the Gemara says, Halacha Kirav Bedini, or Bisura, or Kishmuel B'Mamoyna. Issues of monetary disputes, civil issues, Chesha Mishpat, the halacha usually follows Shmuel. Issues of dinim, halachas, between man and God, not monetary issues, the halacha usually follows a rav. So the Rosh, Rabbeinu Asher, Masech Babakama, explains what's the logic for this. And he says that the rav's court was visited by people who constantly had shilas in different halachas between man and God. Erechayim, Yeridea, Evan Ezer. Shmuel's best and Shmuel's court were experts in monetary disputes because monetary disputes from the entire country came there and as a result of that the court of Shmuel excelled in this particular area. They dealt with so many different cases and so many different questions with so many different situations and circumstances that simply the Bezdin became much more excelled in this area. When it comes to issues of therapy psychology, mental illness, and so forth. It's not just enough to find somebody who's called a rabbi, even though he may be a great person. You need somebody who's an expert in this particular field. Just like there are rabbis who are experts in questions of medical ethics, or end-of-life issues, or infertility issues, in vitro fertilization. Not just enough somebody... Who knows other halachas to be an expert in this? This is particular, particular issues. The world of marriage counseling, of therapy, of healing, of psychological issues, whether personally or in terms of relationships, there's huge, huge amounts of research in this area. Experiments, exercises, and the most important results of facts on the ground with hundreds and hundreds and thousands of cases. So, it's always good to get advice, but you want to get advice from somebody who has proven to be knowledgeable and an expert in this area. Generally, the greater the one sign that somebody is an expert is that they call experts. <laughs> when they have a question on something that they don't dedicate their life to, the first thing they do is they call the experts to make sure that their views are consistent with the reality of the situation and how it can best be helped. And that's why I would encourage you particularly to ask this rabbi, this Rav, who says that therapy should not be taken, if he could please call the therapist that you're going to and have an open conversation and then see the results. If he's not open to speak to anybody, especially somebody who has seen you over many months and many years, it could be this is not his field of expertise, and you may want to seek somebody who's an expert in this area. I have mental illness. I have been diagnosed with mental illness many years ago. My journey is incredibly, incredibly difficult. But I have to say, in many ways, it's also beautiful. Things that people take for granted, I have to self-teach. I have to learn that making a mistake doesn't make me unworthy. That love shouldn't have to be earned, but it's a birthright. That inherently each human being is beautiful and so, so worthy. And many other things that come very, very difficult to me. 
However, maybe I'm just weak and really it's all in my head and if I would just work harder, I would be normal. I feel less only because I'm being easy on myself and I blame it on mental illness. Since there's no blood test or scan confirming mental illness, the onus is on me and how I see myself, I guess. Maybe I'm exaggerating my symptoms. Yes, I have severe symptoms, but oh gosh, maybe this is just all my fault. And why did God give me mental illness? Is this what you do to someone that you love? You're addressing here a very, very serious situation, and many of us are really uneducated in this area. First of all, you ask why God gave you mental illness. I don't know. I don't know why God gives anybody any circumstances. You doubt yourself about your mental illness. There's, it's always good to question yourself, but you always have to have compassion for yourself. Meaning, as I said before, there are experts in this area. If you're going to an expert, and if it doesn't work with one, go to another one or a third one. There's no need to forever doubt yourself. You may really have some serious struggles and challenges that come from within and things that other people take for granted, you can't take for granted. What I would add from a more spiritual perspective is this. Every soul journeys into this world with two suitcases. One suitcase is, one suitcase is filled with the challenges that the soul is going to have to face during its lifetime. Every soul has its challenges, its journeys, its difficulties. And that's one suitcase that we carry. The other suitcase that we carry into this world is full of the talents, gifts, and resources that we need to withstand these challenges. The difference between these two suitcases is as follows. The first suitcase is open for you. The second suitcase, you have to open yourself. Your soul's challenge or one of his challenges may be mental illness. That's a suitcase. You didn't choose that suitcase. It's really not your fault. Your mission is to use your talents to turn the pain and frustration and deep agony and misery into a positive journey and a positive force for good. I believe that perhaps because of your openness and willingness to share your experiences, you can be a source of tremendous light, clarity, and inspiration to others who suffer from mental illness and to their loved ones and families who are often left in the dark. You can bring hope and light to people who are not as strong as you by showing them how much they can achieve if they focus on their abilities and that every challenge is also an opportunity and every crisis is also an opportunity for growth. You can also bring understanding and insight to many of us who have never experienced the pain of mental illness. The fact is that in so many communities, mental illness remains an absolute stigma. If somebody suffers from it, it's done in complete silence. They don't feel they can talk to anybody. It's also not something many people understand, especially because it's not visible. When somebody, God forbid, is suffering from cancer, or suffering from another devastating physical illness. People see it, they notice it, they feel compassion, they feel empathy. They donate money, they help out the person, they help the family, they pray, they say Tehillim and so forth. Those of us suffering from mental illness suffer in silence. People look perfectly normal, high functional. 
sometimes extremely respected members in the community, but internally for them to wake up in the morning is so painful that people who don't have this can't even understand it. Somebody who never suffered from clinical depression or from bipolar or other mental challenges and illnesses doesn't even begin to understand the hellish, incredible pain and misery that innocent souls go through. But nothing is physical, nothing is displayed. It's internal trauma and internal agony. And people who have this need to be able to turn for help. They need to be able to talk about it to somebody without being stigmatized that they're not normal and crazy. And if they don't talk about it, there'll be hope that they'll live a normal life and they'll be accepted and they suffer for the rest of their life inside. A person like yourself, who obviously has a lot of courage, can change that tide a little bit. We desperately need to be able to talk about things. God presented your soul with a tremendous challenge. I don't know why. But it seems to me that he has given you a bright personality, a warm personality, a deep personality, and a strength of character that will not only allow you to stand up to these challenges, but also transform so many people's darkness into light. You have gifts that you can share with the world. Don't stop and don't wait. This doesn't answer any questions and it doesn't take away the pain. I'll always try to be here for you. You've sent me many, many letters in the past. That's how I know a little bit about you. And if I could be here for you in any way, I would like to be here with for you. But never, ever doubt the tremendous, infinite light that you have in your soul. And never see your challenges as a verdict that your life has to be miserable. Always see it as a mission. You were not sold into this place. You were sent. Even if I believe in Maimed Har Sinai, which means I have faith that God exists, that He gave us the Torah, that at Mount Sinai the Jewish people stood and they experienced the presence and the existence of Hashem, which we call Torah and Hashemayim. I have a question. How is this the obligation of the children of the people who stood there? If my father takes upon himself something, his commitment should affect me. If my father votes Republican, do I have to vote Republican? If my father commits to help a certain organization, it's my problem? My father decides to be friends with somebody. I have to be friends with them? Absolutely not. And this is not my father. This is like my great, 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 great grandfather and grandmother, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 generations. Now you're going to tell me that the Medrash says that all the souls were there. So therefore I also made the commitment. But you and I know, I don't feel it. I don't know if you feel that your soul was there. But even if it's true, shouldn't such an important thing be specified in the Torah? So my parents made a decision. Good for them. Why do I have to suffer? It's an excellent, excellent question. I've been asked the question, if you could put your cell phones on vibrate, please. So those of us who have ADD, it's hard enough to concentrate. It's an excellent question. I've been asked the question many times, including quite a few emails that came in on this question. I'm not going to discuss now how a rational person believes that Torah is divine. We discussed it in sheer number uh, six, and number seven, I believe, and I think number 13, a few times, in the basics of Amuna that are all posted on the yeshiva.net. But I'm going to discuss your particular question about the relationship between the parents 
and the great-great-grandchildren so many generations later. You ask a question, why should my father's commitments or my mother's commitments obligate me? They don't obligate us in any other particular area. Our parents make different commitments and we're not bound by those commitments. But I would put it this way. I don't think this is so much, I think this is more about truth than than it is about obligation. If my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather discovered penicillin or discovered antibiotics or discovered electricity or my great-grandparents were the Wright brothers who discovered aviation, how to fly or any other discovery that has been made over the last 50, 100, 1,000, 3,000 years. I will not say, oh, I'm not going to use antibiotics. I'm not going to use a plane. This is my great-grandfather's discovery. It's not my problem. (laughs) He discovered it. Let him use it. If my grandfather discovered DNA, cellular biology, black holes, or the Big Bang, I don't say, it doesn't obligate me. It's not my problem. It's not so much about a contract. It's about an awareness of what is true. If my grandfather discovered something and it's true, I could run away from it for the rest of my life and say it's not my problem, but it's not about a problem. It's the question is, what is true and what is not true? What is life? What is the purpose of life? Does the world have a creator? If the world has a creator, what does the creator want from me? How do I fit into the system of creation? What is the purpose of my existence? These are not so much questions of contracts. These are questions of truth. I'll put it a little bit in different words, perhaps. I don't know if you ever went to a huge library, but I once went to a library, some of these humongous libraries that number books, not in the thousands and not in the hundreds of thousands, but in the millions. And they're almost endless. The corridors are endless. Books and manuscripts and collections not only of recent publications, but of manuscripts over hundreds and sometimes thousands of years. And you look around, and you're humbled. You're humbled by the amount of data, by the amount of information that's in this library. You know, where do you even begin? Where do you begin? How many people have, in their lifetime, mastered ten books? (laughs) really mastered ten books from beginning to end, but mastered them. Really mastered them. How many people you know? Five books. Two books. I'm not talking about read them. People read. But I'm talking about mastered. Now here you have hundreds, thousands, maybe millions, but thousands are enough. Thousands and thousands and thousands. You don't even know, you don't even know where to begin. And then somebody, the chief librarian, calls you over. And he takes you down corridors and halls, And he brings you to a particular section. And then he brings you to a particular bookcase. And then he brings you to a particular shelf. And then he takes out this old book. It's 3,330 years old. And on the cover of the book is the name of your family. And he says, here, this is your family's book. And you open it up. And it's the story of your family. From the founder of the dynasty of your family, all the way till you. And he says, this is yours. There's some empty pages at the end for you to continue the story. Now you could look at him and say, this is not my problem. (laughs) 
I don't, it's not my issue that they wrote a book. Here, take the book and give it to somebody else. I'm going to deal with all the other books. You could do that, I suppose. But it's really not about the guilt that your parents imposed upon you as much as it is about your story. This is your story. You can ignore it. You can run away from it. You could be angered by it. You could be pained by it. But this is your story. And what if the book tells you about the genes that you come from? If the book describes to you your DNA, if the book describes to you features, characteristics, tragedies, triumphs, victories, vices, virtues, gifts, defeats of your family for generations and generations, of struggles and wars, of great exhilarating moments and great difficult moments, I could say, this doesn't obligate me. I'm not connected to this book. I could supposedly do that. But it's like saying, if my nutritionist tells me, you know, this is your blood type, and uh, therefore these foods will enhance your energy, and these foods will really bring you down. Well, I could say, ah, it's not my problem. Well, it happens to be it's not my problem, but it's just my reality. This book is, this book is, is my reality. So, it's not the Jews stood, they made a commitment. What, what happened at Har Sinai is, it's your story. It's the story of your reality. It's the story of your people. And most importantly, it's not a question of contracts or obligations. It's a question of what is your ultimate truth. If somebody tells me who I am, and that is true, my choice is to be to, to, to accept who I am or not to accept who I am. But I can't become another person. If a person decides tomorrow that he's a horse, there are people who decide that. And in many ways there are advantages to being a horse. I don't know if you're familiar with them. But there are advantages to being a horse. Right? And I could decide that, but it's not going to take away from the fact that I'm a human being. I could choose to live as a human being. I could choose to live as a horse. But it will not deny the fact of who I am. And I think the path to happiness and freedom is not denying who you are, acknowledging who you are, and then being that person. Because if this is who I am, there's only one path to happiness. And that is embracing it with all my passion and all my zest. And if somebody says, but I didn't want to be me. Okay, perhaps. Fine, you didn't want to be you. And we have to maybe answer some questions about why a God would want you to be you. But there's only one path for you. And that is to find you in you, to find yourself in, in yourself. This is a sharp letter. I grew up in a very religious community and a very abusive home. I was abused in my home. I was abused in my school. I was abused by the people I went to for help. You know very well, Rabbi Jacobson, from all the letters you receive, and I heard from many, and I, I, I heard that you know this, and I know that you know this from many lectures that you gave, that religion is often very, very abusive. People who are very religious still abuse other people physically and emotionally. 
My parents are very, very religious people, but also very abusive people. If so, why don't you go to the next step, Rabbi YY, and reach the logical conclusion, let's get rid of religion. Instead of trying to answer and protect and help people, why don't we get to the cause? If there's an infection, you don't give people Tylenol or give them Band-Aids. You try to get rid of the infection. Generally, I would say more than this. Religion is the cause of all wars. The main dangers of society today in the global arena come from fundamentalist Islamists. They believe in religion. Imagine they wouldn't believe in religion. Why don't we just wipe religion off the face of the map and the world will be a better place? It's an excellent question, really good question. Religious people can be very abusive, that's the truth. And religious people can use religion as a justification for abuse. It happens all the time. In fact, I'm a Jew, and you really don't have to convince me about this. Who more than the Jewish people know what religious Christians and religious Muslims have done to our people for almost 2,000 years. How many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Jews, were murdered in pogroms, in auto, in auto de fe's, in fires, in inquisitions, in expulsions and genocides, in the name of God and in the name of religion. Nobody has to convince the Jewish people the dangers of religion. The deep hatred to fundamentalist Islam is directed first and foremost to the Jews, even before the Americans. Jihad and suicide bombings began in one place before anywhere. They did not begin, did not, did not begin in Manhattan and the Twin Towers or in Madrid or in Mumbai. They began on buses and in cafeterias, pizza shop, schools, basketball courts of the Jewish homeland. Then they traveled to the rest of the world. So, <laughs> it's really a no-brainer that in the name of religion, the worst crimes against humanity have been committed. People have blamed God or their prophets for killing Jews and so many more innocent people. It happens till today, sadly and tragically. But that's really, there's no argument about that if you're a sane and understanding person of integrity. But I want to really tune into your question. Let's step away a moment away from religion, any religion, and speak about mothers. Okay? Are there any abusive mothers in the world? Anybody? Are there any abusive mothers in the world? Huh? No? Ah. Yes. I hope your mother is listening and watching. There are. Okay. Sadly, I wish there were not, but sadly there are abusive mothers in the world. I'm not discussing if it's malicious or it's completely out of ignorance. They're just wounded and clueless. They're survivors themselves and they don't really know anything about love and nurture and protection. That's really another discussion. It's not about judgment and blame and prosecution. It's just a fact 
that mothers who are the people who sacrifice most to bring a child into the world with a lot of pain since the story of the tree of knowledge and with tremendous sacrifice. The people that infants and children trust most because their very life depends on these mothers. Sometimes these mothers or fathers who are the second closest to the children could be very abusive as some of you in this audience know very well physically, emotionally, and in other ways that I'm not going to even graphically describe. So now I ask a question. Should, would you suggest that we get rid of all mothers? Should we really do away with all mothers? What do you say? Send all the mothers on vacation? <laughs> Let the Kehillahs raise the children. You know, the communists once had an idea to obliterate families, and the government, the communist republic, will raise children. You know where that idea went. Obviously, you're laughing. What about doing away with all fathers? Let's just get rid of all the fathers. And you know what? No mothers, no fathers, no abuse. I have another idea. No kids. Oh, interesting. No, no, they give birth and then we get rid of them. No abuse. No schools, no abuse. No teachers, no abuse. No babysitters. Let's get rid of all babysitters forever. No abuse. No camp. No counselors. No uncles. Nobody should allow to be uncles. No uncles, no cousins. No abuse. No guests in the home. No abuse. No synagogues. A lot of abuse happened, you know where? In shuls. Let's get rid of all the synagogues. And there won't be abuse. The answer, of course, to this is, it doesn't really make sense. To get rid of mothers <laughs> would be getting rid of the most precious relationship in all of the planet. There's no relationship that is as vital, as necessary, as loving, and as incredibly powerful and amazing and nurturing as a relationship of a mother to a child. Their very life security depends on that attachment. The same is true of father and, 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 and children. What we do need is, we need to be able to distinguish between good mothers, great mothers, mediocre mothers, and dangerous mothers. Between great fathers, extraordinary fathers, and sometimes dangerous fathers. We have to be able to educate people. We have to be able to help people understand the differences. Help the people themselves understand the difference between good and evil. Between constructive education and destructive education. Between discipline and cruelty. Between fear of heaven and abuse. I'll ask you another question. One of the most notorious doctors in all of history, who was a great expert in medicine, was a man named Dr. Joseph Mengele. In the name of medicine, and for the research of medicine, and for the advancement of medicine, he conducted some of the most sadistic, barbaric experiments in the history of humanity on Jews in the death camp, particularly in Auschwitz-Birkenau. Some of you, like I, may have known or know Mengele's twins, as they were known, or Mengele's patients, and what he has done to them, all for the sake of medicine, for understanding the workings of human biology and the human organism. So now I ask you a question. Should we ban all medicine? Should we ban all doctors? None of us should go to doctors, which some of you are getting excited about, I know. 
Should we ban? It's toiv shabiraifim. The best of doctors goes to Gehenna. Only the best. Because the best of doctors thinks, the best of doctors thinks that he doesn't need any more consultation with anybody. The best of doctors can become arrogant and pompous. Toiv says in Kedushin, toiv shabiraifim again. The best of doctors goes to purgatory. Toiv is Tes Vav Vez 17. Tes is 9, Vav is 6, Vez is 217. A doctor who only believes in Toiv in 17 blessings of Shmoyna Esra. Shmoyna Esra is 18. He only believes in Toiv in 17 because Rifa'enu Hashem Rafa, he doesn't belong to him. He doesn't need God as a healer. He knows everything. Such doctors talk belong in purgatory. Generally, people who are experts in everything and can't pick up a phone and have the humility and know that the certain subjects they did not dedicate their lives to. And there are people who did. Speak to them. Such people could become dangerous. Are we going to then ban and excommunicate and try to vanish all doctors from our planet? That's ridiculous. Medicine saves lives every single day. We don't get rid of doctors. We don't get rid of mothers. We don't get rid of fathers. We don't close down all schools and get rid of the institution of babysitters just because there have been babysitters or counselors or uncles or cousins or guests who did horrific things to defenseless, vulnerable children under their protection or not under their protection. What we need is to educate, to make people aware, to warn, to report to bring out from the darkness the skeletons that are sometimes associated with parenthood or education. So people can make distinctions. So the defenseless don't have to be defenseless. That is what we need. Let me tell you something about abuse. Abuse doesn't come from religion. (laughs) Abuse comes from human nature. From human insecurities. From human trauma. From human evil from human narcissism, from human stupidity, from human ignorance, from human selfishness, from human voids, from human deep, deep, deep addictions and bad habits that were never dealt with and cultivated. That's where abuse, that's where abuse comes from. If you happen to be religious, oh, you can use religion to justify rationalize your abuse, just like if you're a horrible, sadistic, evil doctor, you can use medicine and surgery, which are there to save lives, to destroy lives, and to torture people. But now let's look at it the other way for a moment. Come with me and look at it from the other perspective. Religion, and I'm going to speak specifically here about Judaism, because that is your question. When you speak about Yiddishkeit, Judaism, it's probably the best tool to work on yourself if you're suffering from these conditions that turn you into an abuser. First of all, Judaism argues, and this is not a scientific statement, that we are all one, that we all come from one source, that harming you is a form of harming myself. Judaism argues that everything I do, I'm accountable for. And even if I conceal it, it's not concealed forever. I am responsible for every action. Judaism argues that there is meaning and purpose in my life, and therefore I don't have to fear confronting my demons, my pain. I don't have to fear my abyss, 
Because deep down within the abyss, there is meaning. This is where religion, where Judaism can become the greatest force for healing, for recovery, for honesty, for integrity. Judaism teaches that people can control themselves. Judaism teaches that at the end of the day, God wants you to be happy and to live a successful life, not a life in which you abuse others and ultimately have to always escape your fate. The same as when you talk about wars. Were there many wars conducted in the name of religion? Of course. Were many people murdered in the name of Christianity and Islam and other religions? Of course. But you think it's religion that causes wars? No. Secular people never had wars. Who are the greatest murderers in human history? Two people. Anybody knows? Joseph Stalin, number two. Adolf Hitler, both of them murdered in the name of? Not religious ideals, secular ideals. For one it was communism and socialism. And for other one, the other one it was the superiority of the Aryan of the German race. Huh? Racial selection, yeah, in the name of, of the science that Germany produced. They weren't religious ideals, they were secular ideals. Mai Tzu Tung. How many people did Mai Tzu Tung murder? In China. The millions. In what name? Not in the name of religion, in the name of secular ideals. That for them was religion. They were substitutes to God. They weren't based on a Bible or God. And talk about almost somebody who almost became our friend in North Korea. I know it's a very sensitive topic today. But what's, 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 what's his issue? <laughs> North Korea is not about religion. The point is, wars are caused by people. If it's not religion, we fight about other things. Pagans who believed in thousands and millions of mythical gods also fight. People can kill each other on parking lots. Who gets the, who gets the space in the parking lot? Thank God, not here. We have enough space. People fight about money. People fight about territory. Cain killed Hevel, the first murder in history. Why did he kill him? The Medrash Rabbah gives three reasons. Reason number one, it doesn't say clearly why he killed them. The Torah doesn't say why he killed them. So the Medrash Abbas says three reasons. Reason number one is, they argued over real estate. Cain said, all of earth belongs to me. Hevel said, okay, all mobile assets belong to me. So they got into a fight. Cain told Hevel, you're not allowed to be on earth because it's mine. So Hevel said, take off your garments because they're mine. So they killed him. He killed him. Second reason he killed him is because Hevel had an extra twin an extra twin girl, and Cain wanted that girl. He said, I'm the oldest, I get your extra twin. The third reason the matter says is, they fought where the Besamekta should be. <laughs> so he killed them. So you see three reasons. One has to do with love and intimacy, one has to do with territory, and one has to do with God. And those are the basic three reasons why people kill each other till today. <laughs> Every war begins with Cain and Hevel. We're human, and as humans, we could behave like the jungle, and sometimes much worse than the jungle, because lionesses and cheetahs and tigers kill when they're hungry. And we sometimes kill and embarrass and insult and abuse, even when we're not hungry. If you're evil and you're unrefined, can you use religion? Of course you could use religion. What's the solution? The solution is not to get rid of religion, and I'll tell you why. Religion, and again I'm going to speak about Judaism, is actually the only and best argument for peace. Because it argues that we're one. I mean, we say in our Declaration of Independence in America that it's self-evident that all men are created equal. What makes it self-evident? Maybe we're not created equal. Who says we're created equal? 
This was the argument of the Bible, that every human being was created in the image of God. It was Judaism that argued that we all come from one source. It was Judaism that argued that we're all responsible to each other. We're all really one because there's one God. It was Judaism that argues that moral behavior is expected from every creature and it's woven into the very fabric of reality. These are religious ideas. So that's why I know about the abuse. But I don't think the solution for that is to remove from the world the idea that people can heal, which is the core of all of Judaism, that people can heal, that people can recover, that people can repent, and if that you were hurt, you can always recreate yourself. I would not remove that from the vocabulary of your home, your soul, of my home and my soul. I am a Balchuva. I returned to Judaism many years ago. Today I have to say I'm disillusioned. I have seen too many lies, too much corruption. Where are you living? Which planet are you living? I think it's sometimes all about money. I'm jaded by all these phony ads of rabbis davening and praying for you at all these graves. It's all baloney. I believe in God, but I drifted so far from Him because I feel nobody around me is real anymore. Conversations are so external and so superficial. You ask a question that is deep and real and authentic, and people think you're crazy. There's almost nobody I could speak to real stuff. It's all about money these days with most of the rabbis. How do I get back my amuna? I'm writing to you. You sometimes can be a source of inspiration, but do I know what you're really about? How do I know? (laughs) That's good. Thank you for the applause. And welcome back. How do I know if a rabbi is ever honest? (laughs) First of all, thank you for sharing. And I am sorry for your disillusionment. I know it's sincere and painful. I am not in a position where I can judge anybody. I will never judge anybody that I don't know and I haven't researched. So I'm not really in a position to answer your question and give a blanket statement about everybody being corrupt or not being corrupt. But I'll just share what I think is a fundamental truth. And that is, I have had the privilege of teaching many secular Jews who have made their way back to Jewish observance over the years people who are on the way to become Bali Tshuva, people who became Bali Tshuva, and people who were in the process of becoming Bali Tshuva, and people who were just beginning to, um, to open themselves up to the world of, of Torah, to the world of Jew, to the world of Yiddishkeit. I always shared with my students, of all backgrounds and persuasions, something that I feel is very applicable. And that is, every life needs inspiration. Every one of us in life needs teachers, mentors and guides. The Mishnah says in Pirkei the Ethics of the Fathers, chapter 1, Acquire for yourself a rav, a mentor, and a friend. You need a mentor and you need a friend. I just realized the end of that Mishnah is, And give people the benefit of the doubt. What's the, what's the connection? Then I realized, after so many years of disillusionment, You have to be able to give people also the benefit of the doubt and not become so judgmental. Okay. Or jaded. But we all, we all receive from people. There are people who are important sources of influence in our life, beginning with our parents, our teachers, 
our moras, our rebbe's, our rosh Shivas, our mashgichem, our rebbe's, our our rabbis, whoever they are, there are mentors in our life, and those are important. A person can't learn without a teacher, and yet you always have to remember your relationship with God has to be direct, intimate, direct, and personal. Never build your Judaism on the foundations of an intermediary between you and God. Because people can often disappoint you. All people are mortal. All people make mistakes. Some people make bad mistakes. And some people are con artists too. And it's sad to say, I don't like saying it, it's sad but it's the truth. You can't confuse Jews with Judaism. Judaism is Judaism. Jews are extraordinary people, but we're not perfect. And when your whole Judaism is based on this rabbi or this rebbitzin or this person or this individual, and then suddenly 20 years later you discover something, and your whole foundation sometimes is out the window and you're disillusioned. This is not about cynicism. It's about knowing that your foundation must develop into one that is a rela- that constitutes a relationship directly between you and the Rebbe Yenushalayla. And I'm going to ask a question, it's a completely hypothetical question, but this is the question I've asked students. If you find out tomorrow, heaven forbid, that there are millions of Jews in New York who claim to be religious, and they're absolutely not. They are all living a lie and a cover-up. Will you stop? Will you not put on tefillin tomorrow morning? Will you not keep Shabbos? Will you stop eating kosher? Because this whole society is corrupt. Some people might say, of course, they're all liars. But then you're forgetting one thing. When God revealed Himself to the Jewish people at Sinai, and He communicated the Ten Commandments, which we just celebrated two days, three days ago, He opens up and He says the first words to the Jewish people, Anoichi Hashem I am your God who has taken you out of Egypt. And all the commentators and the measures say, why in the singular when you're speaking to four million people? The uniqueness of this moment was that you weren't speaking to one person, you were speaking to everybody. As in the Shema. And there are different answers that are given. But one of the great and beautiful answers, I think it comes from the first Majid Rebbe, who said, God was saying, All I need in the world is you. All I want is you. I am your God. Imagine the whole world was out. It's about you. I want you. I want a relationship with you. There's an exclusivity. There's an intimacy there. So yes, learn from people. Take inspiration from people. Always. And a, a scholar is called Talmud Chachem. So the Chavis Yair, I think in his introduction, says, why a Talmud Chachem? A Chachem. Why a Talmud Chachem? He said, because the great sage is always a student. The moment you're not a student, you're not a Chachem. You always have to be a Talmud Chachem. But don't build your whole source of inspiration on a person or people. You are directly responsible to the creator of the world. That is the essence of Judaism. It doesn't justify people's corruption or mistakes, and I'm sorry for disillusionment. But it allows you 
not to fall apart when you notice weaknesses of people. So many people, their whole Yiddishkeit falls apart because they hear this story about somebody or this story about somebody. And I say, welcome to America. People have a Yetzirah. It's been around 5,700 and how many years? 78 years. You think it just disappears suddenly? Why? <laughs> Why? Because you looked up to this person. It's great that you looked up to the person. People, every people fall. And sometimes people fall miserably. And great people, by the way, are not people who don't fall. It's people who fall and stand up and apologize and make mistakes and repent. Now you ask, which rabbi can you trust? Which rabbi can't you trust? <laughs> it's, a, it's an interesting question. I'm thinking about it. Uh, what do you guys say? Isaac, you want to answer me? Some of you say are thinking absolutely nobody. Nobody, nobody. <laughs> I'll tell you. I would trust people who see themselves first and foremost as conduits. Conduits of God. I'll explain to you what I mean. When you ask a rabbi a question, he will answer you probably. After that, do a follow-up question. Follow-up question is, (laughs) what's your source? What's your source? You will see different responses. One person will give you such a look, which even without saying anything, is conveying the message. How dare you question my authority? And maybe not with anger, with dismissiveness, which is worse, with derision. Almost like, I'm 72 years old. I've been doing this my whole life. You're a little chick that didn't open its eyes yet. You know when the chicks are hatched, they don't open their eyes? And now you're coming to me, I'm have been a senior chicken, or rooster, for how many years? Lahavdil, of course. And the little chick is coming to challenge me. What, is this a joke? Is this a comedy? Even if he doesn't get angry, it's that dismissive look. He may say something, or may just give that look. I would have difficulty trusting that person. I'm not judging the person, but I'll have difficulty trusting the person. You'll have another rabbi, you'll ask the same question, and humbly, he'll go to the bookshelf, he'll take out the book, and he'll say, this is my source. Or, it's a great question, I have to do my research, I'll get back to you tomorrow or in a week, come back. In other words, the person never sees himself as an authority independently. And what I mean to say is very simple and blunt. The moment a rabbi has power, he becomes a dangerous person. The entire power of a rav, of a real leader of the Jewish people, is that he sees himself as powerless. He sees himself completely as a conduit for Torah, as a channel to give over the words of God, the words of Torah. The moment I start feeling it's mine, 
it's my power, I own it, then I'm not allowed to have any power because my power is dangerous. The moment it's my business, it's my operation, I control it, it's about me, I'm human, I have an ego, it's fine, it's normal, but I can't represent Torah. I can represent my ego, I should go into real estate, that's fine. Become a real estate tycoon, buy buildings on 5th Avenue and 2nd Avenue, or even Borough Park or Williamsburg will do you well financially. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and become a tycoon, gesund to hate. Human egos are only, I, we all have egos, but I have to understand the koyach, the koyach, the power of every member of Sanhedrin, every rov, every rebbe, every tzaddik, every manig Yisrael, is that he sees himself as completely powerless. The more powerlessness, the more power. The more power, the less power. This is articulated clearly in the Gemara and Brachas. Hamelach kivan shakara shuvein ezoik of the Gemara and the Brachas dav chavbeis. Every Jew davin shmeinastra, you bow in the beginning and you bow at the end. The king, once he bows, he's not allowed to pick up his head till the end of shmeinastra. So if you want to throw a sreigem on him, that's the time. Because he's down. The king, any king, why? Everybody could stand like this and he has to be down, a whole shmeinastra. The answer is yes, because you're the king. The king has to be far more humble than everybody else. Infinitely more humble. Because that's the only justification that there is for leadership. The only justification there is for leadership, for authority is that it's completely not about me. It's a privilege. The Gemara says in Meseches Hayri is Dafyud that Rabbi Gamliel wanted to appoint two of the great sages to become leaders. So they refused. They didn't show up. They were very humble people. Finally, he got them to show up and he told them this line. Listen to these words. Rabbi Gamliel says to these two, these two Jews, You think by appointing you leaders on the community, I'm conferring upon you leadership, aristocracy, royalty? I'm turning you into slaves. I'm turning you into servants. I'm turning you into avadim. You become servants of the people. Not lords of the people. Servants of the people. And that's why I could trust him. I can trust him because he looks at himself and he says, what does God want at this moment? What does Torah want at this moment? Such a person you can trust. Uh, a Hasidic Jew once wrote to me about a particular individual. He said, he said, there are two types of Rebbes. There are small Rebbes and there are great Rebbes. He writes to me, the difference is, small Rebbes have the Hasidim running around telling everybody how great the Rebbe is. Great Rebbes always talk about how great his students are. Or to put it in different words, there are two types of leaders. Good leaders create followers. Great leaders create other leaders. The greatest form of leadership is when you create other leaders. You become a source of leadership in others. Those are the people you can trust. People who, when you come to them, you feel that what they want is they want to empower you. They want to turn you into a leader. They're not looking for you to forfeit your personality and become another robot and member in their cult. What they're looking is for you to flex your muscles, maximize your potentials, and light up the world. 
they get excited about the ability of giving people the ability to become successful and powerful. Those are probably people you want to learn from, you want to be inspired from. I suffer from anxiety. Welcome. I was told by people that this proves that I have no connection with God. If I would have emunah and bitachin, if I would have real faith that Hashem runs the world, Hashem is good, Hashem takes care of me, my anxiety would go away. Nonetheless, this only gives me more anxiety. Because every time I have anxiety, in addition to the anxiety, I blame myself as the cause of the anxiety because I don't have emunah which gives me only more anxiety and makes me worry more about me and my future. Is there any way you can ease my anxiety? Without judging anybody, which I never do, I'll just say this. All the people who told this to you, I'll put them into two categories. Either they don't understand what anxiety is, or they don't understand what it means to be connected to God. Because if somebody says to you this statement, either he or she is completely clueless about anxiety, or completely or partially clueless about a connection to God. The pain and suffering of anxiety is not something that everybody can easily control. Some people who suffer from anxiety, say you're suffering from anxiety, even if you tell yourself, God is in charge, He'll take care of everything. There's nothing to be anxious about. And even if you really believe this, it's not fake, you really believe what you're saying. Sometimes it helps, but often it doesn't help. And the anxious thoughts and feelings continue to torture you. Anxiety often requires enormous amount, amounts of inner work. Sometimes it requires therapy, professional assistance in order for you to be able to overcome it. It's a challenge, it's a nisayin, it's a test that God has given you. It has absolutely nothing to do with your faith and connection with God. Our connection to God transcends all of our challenges and our pain. And it can never be dependent on a challenge that He gives us. Challenges that you haven't even chosen. To say that God gives you a challenge, anxiety, and as a result of that you're not connected is unfair, it's senseless, it's cruel. How can you somebody say such a thing? You're given a challenge by God, and then they say as a result of your challenge, you're disconnected. Because you have this challenge that God gave you, and He wanted you to deal with, suddenly you become disconnected from God. You never chose it. You're never disconnected. This is an absolutely unjust and unfair statement. It's true. Sometimes we can turn to our faith and connection to God, and it allows us to overcome our anxiety. Some people do just that. But not always will it work. Sometimes the anxiety is just too deep and strong and powerful. Yes, it's true that the people who have perfect, extraordinary faith are liberated from all anxiety, but that cannot always be the case with everyone. Certainly not with me, and I think not with you. Let me tell you how to look at it. In this very moment, when you're feeling anxiety, it's not always within your choice to not have anxiety. That's not the case. Do not feel guilty about that. 
It is within your choice to work hard and ultimately overcome it, perhaps, or partially overcome it. It is your choice to confront it and find ways to deal with it and ease it. But at this very moment, you cannot snap your fingers and say, Hashem, I'm davening, I believe in you, and the anxiety goes away. It's just simply not the case. And the guilt connected with it is really unfair, and it's just creating unjustified anxiety. I'll tell you what you could do in this moment. In this moment, you could snap your fingers, connect to God, and ask Him to assist you with facing and dealing with your anxiety. In this moment, you can know that you're deeply connected to God. He loves you. He cares for you infinitely, even though you're facing a serious struggle that you have not chosen. And in this very moment, you can know something else. That despite your feelings or thoughts of anxiety that are attacking you, you could still pursue your values. Despite the fact that there are so many voices playing inside your head. The anxious thoughts are not the masters of your life. They're thoughts. They're like clothes. Clothes you could put on, you can take off. Sometimes these clothes are really sticky. But they don't define me. I am not my clothes. These thoughts are here, that's fine. It is permissible to feel anxious. It's part of the human condition. Now, I am going to choose to pursue what is valuable to me in life, rather than the voices that the anxiety the voices that the anxiety is display, the voices coming from the anxiety that are leading me to a certain direction. Imagine you're driving, you're holding onto the steering wheel, and there's always a backseat driver. I'm sure many of you have a backseat driver. And he says, take the light, take the light, take the light. And he doesn't stop. The whole way, there's always somebody in the back who tells you, make a right, make a left, you don't know how to drive, you're driving too fast, you're going to get into an accident, the police are going to stop you. You can't get rid of the backseat driver, especially not if he's in your own head. But it doesn't mean you have to give him the steering wheel. You can hold on to the steering wheel and tell the backseat driver, so nice to hear from you, and continue driving to your destination where you want to go. So I would tell you, my dear friend, relax about not being relaxed, if you can. (laughs) Enjoy serenity about not always being serene. Don't take your anxiety so seriously to worship it or allow it to dictate your life. And sometimes by relaxing about the fact that you're not relaxed... And just letting it be for what it is, it becomes a little weaker. It doesn't have to take over your life. When you stop feeling so anxious about being anxious, and so anxious about lacking amuna and about being a bad girl, and a disappointment to God, that itself may weaken your anxiety. Trust that God loves you, He wants you to be happy and successful in every possible way. Live a life full of simcha, joy, serenity, meaning, and wholesomeness. I am currently opening up in therapy and reliving my abuse, which is creating immense pain. Night in and night out for two years, I was being abused physically. Nobody saw, nobody knew. I didn't tell anybody for many years. I was molested horrifically. I don't have any questions as to why it happened to me, 
Why did I have to go through this incredible pain? But let me tell you something. Being abused as a child creates intense trauma, twisted subconscious thoughts. People who have not been molested don't even begin to understand what people like myself go through. They often look at us and say, get on with your life. Stop it. Don't be a baby forever. I don't blame them. They simply don't know. Thank God with the help of my amazing therapist and supportive husband, and of course God's help, Sayyata Deshmaya, I am slowly learning and improving how to deal with my triggers. I am very grateful for this. My life is filled with triggers, and what I need most is to become aware of these triggers. Here is my problem, however, why I'm writing to you. I feel numb and distant when it comes to talking to God, praying, davening, and opening up to Hashem on a personal level. My heart yearns for that level of connection to God so badly. I miss the connection that I used to have to God, with God prior to my healing process. You see, my coping mechanism at that time was total, total denial that the abuse happened. So I used to speak to God in Yiddish, in English, and sometimes other languages, and I felt him so near. I was completely in denial of my abuse and my pain. I repressed it, I, I repressed it unconsciously, but I had a good connection with him. But now, when everything is coming out, I feel so hurt, I feel so pained by God who let it happen. Every time I try to talk to God, my feelings of pain and abandonment by the one I loved so much comes rushing over me and I just shut down from any conversation and relationship. What bothers me most, and I haven't found any comfort, is what the abuse did to my emuna. More than the trauma of the abuse, I am so hurt by the fact that it also killed my God. I so badly want to connect to God. Why would He allow something to happen that challenges the pure essence of my ultimate connection, of me and every survivor? These connections we victims crave, and yet so many of us can't have it. I have a very hard understand, hard time understanding this. Why would God want to rob me from my amuna? What can I do to reconnect? It would be an honor if you could find the time to answer my question and help me find clarity and comfort. What I say to you is, wow, you write a whole letter how you lost your connection to God as a result of your abuse. But in the very same letter you write that what hurts you more than the trauma of the abuse is the lack of your relationship with God. Let me tell you this. I can only wish on all of us who have not been abused and molested that we would experience 2% of the depth of the relationship that you have with God. Trust me, if you could say that the greatest pain in your life is not the abuse, but the fact that the abuser took away God from you, there are few things that demonstrate a deeper relationship with God than you have. You have such a profound relationship that even the agony and trauma of abuse which most people don't even begin to understand as you eloquently conveyed, is not as deep as the agony that you have from the loss of your relationship with God. Such a relationship with God is one of the deepest that people are capable of having. And I could tell you that this relationship is a source of inspiration for me. Because I don't know, again, how many of us people who are not abused, at least on this level, can even begin begin to have. You are criticizing your amuna. 
you are denigrating your connection, you are putting down your tefillah. And I say, you got it completely wrong. Your relationship with God is as strong and as powerful as ever. It's completely intact. There's a story that reminds me of, there was a Jew who came to his Rebbe, the Tzamech Tzadik, the grandson of the Balatanya, and he said, Rebbe, Rebbe, Chab Sveikas and Amuna, Rebbe, save me, I have doubts in faith. So the Tzamech Tzadik said, Nu is vos. So what? He says, Rebbe, how do you say his vos? Ayid, Ayid, Chab Sveikas and Amuna, I'm Jewish, and I have doubts in faith. So he says, fine, so what? So you have doubts in faith. He says, I'm a Jew. He says, no worries. You have no doubts in faith. Dear letter writer, you don't have any problem in your relationship with God. What you have is pain in your relationship with God. And the only reason you have so much pain in your relationship with God is because you have such a deep relationship. If you wouldn't have such a deep relationship, there would be no pain in the relationship. The depth of pain always comes from the depth of love. The depth of pain always comes from the depth of attachment. Because you have such a deep relationship, the hurt and pain that you went through is eating you up. And you're directing it towards God because of your deep relationship with God. I envy the depth of your relationship. It is very, very powerful. It is very, very pure. It is very, very deep. And what I would suggest to you is talk to God about this. Talk to God about your pain. Talk to God about your disappointment. Talk to God about your shutting down. That itself is a very deep relationship. It's obvious to you, from your, it's obvious to me, reading your letter, that there is an infinite light in your soul. No abuser could take away your light. I just wish you could see it the way I see it. Believe in your light. Allow the pain to come out. Allow the pain to burst. Express it in any way you need to express it. Don't be ashamed. But never ever give up on yourself or on your future. You're a giant of a woman. Infinite blessings are going to come from you. And I want you to remember the great teaching of the Baal Shem Tov. The light that can transform darkness is the light that comes from darkness that has been transformed to light. Generally, darkness is darkness and light is light. Many of us are sent on a mission to the world of light. Some souls were sent on a mission to transform darkness. But how can you transform darkness? Only one way. If you discover the light that comes from darkness that has been transformed into light, then you have the light, the recipe, to transform darkness. Your soul is one of those souls. It faced a lot of darkness. I will never know why. Nobody will ever know why. Nobody should give reasons to the depth of pain. But one thing I know. Your light is not a usual light. It's the light that comes from darkness and it could transform darkness. Question, Rabbi Jacobson. Is therapy against Torah? I once heard you say in a, lect- in a lecture that emotions can be avoid Zorah. 
emotions can be worshipped as idolatry. In therapy, they tell me, trust your gut. Would you say, that's idol worship? Excellent question. Answer. I'm going to rephrase the line you hear in therapy. Trust your gut. Trust your gut that this is how you feel. Yes. Absolutely trust your gut that this is how you feel. You don't have to trust your gut that this is what you should do. Trust your gut that this is what you feel. Don't trust your gut always that this is what you have to do. Sometimes you have to trust your gut that this is what you have to do. No question. For example, if there's a lion coming into the tent and your gut says run, you should follow your gut. But not always. Some person may feel they want to get divorced today. Trust your gut that you feel that way. Sometimes you feel like you want to break the windows of your home. Or you want to punch somebody in the nose. Sometimes you feel like throwing a dish down on the floor. Sometimes you feel like smacking your child, running away from your house, or screaming at them. Trust your gut that this is how you feel. Don't deny it. Don't run from it. But you don't have to trust it to the point that you need to follow it into the world of action. Your child may say, Tati, Tati, call out Salah, call out Salah. Trust your child that he feels like you have to call out Salah. <laughs> but you don't have to call out Salah till you don't check out the seriousness of the wound. He may have just stubbed his toe on the corner of the bed, which deserves sympathy, empathy, a nice hug, a warm kiss, and if possible, vanilla ice cream. But... It does not warrant, thank God, rushing him to the hospital. So, it's not one extreme or another. Judaism never says, don't trust your gut, your gut means nothing, your emotions mean nothing, they're just bad, bad, bad. Follow the right thing. That creates a Judaism that is divorced from the human condition. It allows us to become completely dysfunctional, mechanical robots. People who suffer from emotional constipation and are unaware of their emotions, are people who are not fully alive. But God gave us emotions. He gave us personality. He gave us character. He gave us a soul. Because the relationship is supposed to be holistic. So trust your gut to know how you're feeling. And you'll learn a lot from that. Don't run from it. Respect it for what it is. You don't have to worship it and turn it into a deity that dictates your behavior. I'll give you a metaphor, probably the best metaphor for this, that is in the Tanya chapter 13. He gives the metaphor and distinguishes between a shoifet and a dayan. Explaining a Gemara in Brachas, Samachalaf, Tzadikim yeitzer toiv shoifta, Rishayim yeitzer hara shoifta, Beinanim ze veze shoifta. And he gives the example, he says, you have a jury, or you have a Sanhedrin, and you have a Bezdin. And there's an issue on the table. And everyone, every member of the court, every member of the jury has to give its opinion, has to give his opinion, or her opinion. So people have different opinions. This one says guilty, this one says innocent, this one says death penalty, this one says life in prison, this one says he's an innocent person, let him go. And everyone has it, and that's how it is. That's the nature of a legal, democratic court and debate. 
everyone shares their opinion unbashfully, honestly, with full integrity, even though he, he or she may be contradicting every other opinion. Then there is the Dayan who gives the verdict. The verdict. In our life, most people, we have many different voices giving different opinions. We have a very large jury in our heart. And there's different opinions, different voices, different thoughts, different emotions, different feelings. And that's fine. And then you have to decide what's going to be the verdict. What am I going to do? Am I actually going to punch this person in his nose? Am I actually going to sell my house, get divorced, move out of Muncie, move to Canada? Am I actually going to slap my child? Am I going to run away from the house because I can't deal with the stress? Am I going to quit my job today because I'm so angry at my employer? That you're angry at your employer is one of the voices. Great. May have a lot of insight, that voice. Probably has a lot of insight. But you don't have to allow every member of the jury to give the final verdict. Shoiftan is one of the shoiftim, one of the judges, not the one who gives the verdict. I am a Hasidish, very from teacher. That's redundant. I have been through trauma. For years I have been trying to heal myself through Torah. I read, learned, asked plenty. I read the books of this rabbi, that rabbi. She lists off many rabbis' books that she read. Contemporary rabbis. Finally, finally, after three decades, I went into therapy. I'll tell you the truth. I find the very fact that therapy is helping me more than my learning and searching did an offense to Torah. It's shaking up my entire faith in Judaism. All the books I've read and learned, all the education in school, all my teaching for decades of Yiddishkeit did not bring me respite from my trauma. Therapy is. What does this tell me about Torah? Doesn't the Gemara say, Barasi Yetzirhara, Barasi Loi, Torah, Tavlin. God says, I created a Yetzahara and I created Torah as a remedy. It's an excellent question. There's a lot to say about this. I'm going to make two points very briefly, just to touch on it. Often, the Torah that we learn is detached from life. It's not applied to our real life. And we need help bringing it down to our real life. Often concepts in Torah are very abstract, and very often teachers of Torah, who have not experienced these ideas internally, can't convey the realness of these ideas. And we sometimes need help from somebody to apply these concepts to our lives. Besides the fact, a lot of people are very knowledgeable in a certain aspect of Judaism, but not in other aspects of Judaism. Judaism has two dimensions to it. What's called the nigla and the nister. The nigla is the concrete, practical guidelines of Judaism. What are you allowed to do on Shabbos? What are you not allowed to do on Shabbos? What do you eat? What are you allowed to eat? What are you not allowed to eat? How do you build an Erev? How do you build a mikveh? What makes an Esther kosher? What, makes, what disqualifies an Esther? What makes something chametz? What's not chametz? Etc. How long do you eat matzah for? What bracha do you make? What happens if you forget something in davening? Very, very important, the concrete guidelines of Judaism. But there's a whole other aspect of Judaism. The inner theology, spirituality, psychology, and therapy of Judaism. Very often people are really clueless about it. 
They don't know anything about it. So how can you expect it to help you in this area? Now, all of Torah is helpful. But if it's not, you don't feel the connection to your life, very often you will remain unhealed. And there's nothing wrong with finding a person who can help you apply great truths to your life. And remember that not everything that a therapist says also is sacred, meaning you have to be an educated consumer when it comes to therapy as well. But I'll tell you one more thing. The Gemara says, Barasi Yitzhahara Barasi Tavlin. I created Torah as Tavlin. What does the word Tavlin mean? Tavlin doesn't mean remedy. Tavlin means spices. What do spices do? We use spices. What do spices accomplish? Spices don't destroy the food. You know what spices do? They add taste to the food. You put in a little salt and pepper, you put in a little salt and pepper or other spices to your salad or to your cholent or to your kugel or to your challah or to any dish you make. The spice is not supposed to destroy the food unless you really don't know what you're doing. If you know what you're doing, the spice adds luster and flavor and delight and geschmack to the food. So the Talmud, the Gemara says here, God says, I created the evil inclination and I created Torah as a spice. What does this mean? That the ultimate function of Torah is to show me how my Yetzir Hara, how my challenges and my challenging inclinations and my negative inclinations can add a whole new spice to my life. The objective of Torah is to spice up the Yetzirah. Think about it. To give the Yetzirah personality, meaning, life, to turn the Yetzirah into an instrument of my spiritual growth, of my relationship with God. And this actually, therapy can't really do. We need Torah to help us see our Yetzirah in a positive light. To be able to look at everything you're going through and find the powerful meaning and opportunity for growth is something that Torah, by its very definition, can help you out with in a very profound way. Next, you speak a lot about individuality. This is a lie, at least for me. And I'll tell you why, I'll prove it from you. Every week you come dressed with the same uniform. You always wear black and white. Okay, sometimes blue and white. Gray and white. Wow, you notice. Why don't you ever dress as an individual? <laughs> A little diversity. You speak about everybody being individual. But everybody in your community and in most communities where I am, everybody looks exactly the same. All the men basically wear black and white or something similar. And the guys who think they're cool, they put on a blue shirt. Basically, all your preaching about individuality is about individuality within a cult. Let me ask you my question. I am a parent of six kids. I live in a community here in Muncie. How can a parent of six kids, all being part of the same system, Start to individualize myself. I want to start living instead of existing just to fit into the cult due to peer pressure. Sincerely, a real son of God who wants to live with him without any brokers. 
Ganz gut. What should I wear next week? A yellow bow tie, an orange hat, one shoe green, one shoe brown. <laughs> and maybe dye my hair. Dye my hair, I like that color. What is it, light beige? How do you do it? <laughs> Just a... I am not, I cannot, again, I, it's hard to speak about people and individuals and communities. Every person is a universe in and of themselves. I've learned that a long time ago, including you and including your colleagues and including your friends. But I will talk about the fact that in more Jewish observant communities, um, at least many of the men tend to dress very similar to each other, which you don't find in the secular world. And shouldn't a system of Judaism that encourages so much individuality, as I claim in my lectures, <laughs> encourage everybody to dress differently? So I'm going to make a point, and I'm going to make an opposite point, and both, both are true. Sometimes I would say, that because many of us dress the same or very similar to each other, it actually allows us to become and to be more individual. And I'll tell you why. What does it mean to be an individual? What is individuality? What does it mean? What does it mean? Does it mean I'm coming out of my house tonight, I'm going to a bar mitzvah or to a reception or to a restaurant or to a wedding or just a walk? So I say, you know what? I want to be an individual. I don't want to be like you and you and you and you and you and you. And most of you are wearing white shirts. Actually, we have a lot of individuals here, I see. <laughs> I don't know who I'm attracting here. But I think most of the people here are wearing white shirts. Okay, some of you have made very individual choices tonight, I have to admit. So I really want to be an individual. I want to be a why why? I don't want to be a copycatter. So I'm going to focus on maybe instead of a black tie, a purple tie, and maybe instead of a black coat, a green. Do green and purple go? Yes? Okay. Fine. And I come out and I look and everybody looks at me and I have one shoe yellow and one shoe dark brown and my hair, like, like, like some people do, especially teenagers, right? They'll do one sock this way, one sock that way. You see it all over the place. And I come and everybody looks and they say, wow, he's an individual. He's an individual. What does it mean to be an individual? I think the definition of individual means you realize your own uniqueness. You appreciate and cherish that your soul is distinctive to you. Your journey is distinctive to you. You have challenges and gifts that nobody has. You express Hashem's light in this world in your own unique way. Nobody can ever take that from you. Nobody can ever give that to you. It's yours and yours alone. And it's your mission and your life and your experiences throughout the 24 hours of the day that you alone have. To quote David HaMelech in Tehillim, many Kehillahs say it's Shabbos morning, I think Kuflam and Hey, Andi, I know that God is great and our Master is greater than all the Lords, all the Gods. 
So most people focus on what? Aniyadati, God Hashem, I know that God is great. One of the great men, I think Reb Nachman writes, the focus is, Ki aniyadati, God Hashem. I know that God is great, and the way I know it, nobody else knows it. The way I live life, the way I experience life, nobody else can experience life. There's something you know about life that I will never know and you can teach it to me. There's something I know about life you will never know and I can teach it to you. The music that plays in your soul is not the music that plays in my soul. And conversely, every person is a universe and every person is a rich tapestry of infinity that shines through this person's soul in a uniquely individual way. That's how I would define individuality. But say that it works? That's my definition. According to you, to be original, I need to wear a weird shirt, cool shoes, an unusual haircut. The more unusual my haircut, the more unusual my bow tie or my shoes or my, my, my jacket, the more I'll stand out in the crowd. But now I want to ask you, is that really what makes you different from anyone else? Woe unto you, I feel bad for you. If the only difference you feel exists between you and the other people is the color of your socks or the color of your shirt. Do you think you're such a superficial person that the only difference between you and other people is your socks and your hairdo? Don't you realize that clothes are important? But they're an exter- completely external to who you are as a soul, as a heart, as a mind. Can't you cherish your own specialness? Wherever you turn in life, your individuality shines. As long as you're an honest person, you will be an individual because no two souls are the same. The Mishnah says in Sanhedrin Lamed Zion, Kishem Shem Partsufein Shavas, Kachin Deyesein Shavas. No two faces are alike, no two mindsets are alike, no two cells are alike. And every person has to say the world was created for me, for my unique contribution. Kotzke Rebbe once said, Why does the Mishnah say, just like their faces are not alike, their minds are not alike? What's the just like? He says, Nobody gets upset at anybody else because they don't look like them. I don't come into Shul and say, You know, when is your nose? Gonna look just like my nose. Why do you have to always be different? Mamash on action. Why can you just look like me? We're all happy that I look, I am, are you, are you? So he says, so why do you get upset when somebody thinks not like you? His nose is not like you, his eyes are not like you, his heart is not like you, and his mind is not like you. It's supposed to be that way. I feel bad that you feel that there's really nothing to you and to your individuality outside of the color of your socks. Woe unto teenagers and children and adults that believe this is how they're going to make a mark on their universe. Rather than appreciating and cherishing your inner soul. In Judaism, what makes an individual is never clothing. It's character. It's not clothing. And sometimes when you're part of a community of people and everybody dresses the same, there's only one way to stand out. You have to be original. <laughs> you can't stand out with the shirt. Can't stand out with the hat. You got to be an original. It's not your clothing. The people that are around you, you're not going to notice them for their clothing. You're going to notice them for their character. The way they treat people, their manner of speech, their dignity, their light, their majesty, their personality, their empathy, their kindness, their wisdom, their commitment. You can't hide behind a superficial individuality based on hairstyle and fashion. 
You have to be a real individual. Now, I'm not telling you to go buy a black jacket. I really don't care if you wear a different type of jacket. I'm not telling you what to wear. But perhaps you should rethink how you look at yourself. Maybe you're projecting your superficial image of yourself to the people around you. Start appreciating that you're much deeper than the color of your socks and the color of your shirt. I will tell you, however, that it is sad that in some communities where that dress was actually just meant to get the externals out of the way so that people could shine, what happens in some communities is the exact opposite. It's all about everybody being dressed the same. With such little focus on character development, on inner personality, and on conversations of truth and integrity. That's the other extreme that is very sad. The whole focus of dress in a similar way is to get it out of the way so people can actually shine as individuals. And what often happens is that most external facet becomes, in some people's mind, the beginning, middle, and end of all Judaism. That's where God is. That's where truth is. That's where Shaduchim are. That's where happiness is. That's where your future is. Clothes are important. Garments are important. The way we dress makes a statement about who we are, what our values are. But clothes are statements about our external selves, not about our internal self. And it baffles my imagination when I get an email from somebody. He didn't ask a question, so I'm not reading it. I get an email from a person who asks me to try to convince his son at the bar mitzvah of his son to wear a strimal so he doesn't embarrass the family. There's only one problem. This son doesn't keep Shabbos. He doesn't eat kosher. He doesn't put on tefillin. He doesn't even believe God exists. He does things that I'm not going to elaborate in a shir. But his father is so not connected with his world. All he wants is he should look good in the pictures. He's completely disconnected from who his son is. For him, the streimel is God, truth, Torah, Yiddishkeit. The whole point of the streimel was to create a uniform that allows the inner soul to shine. When it substitutes everything else, obviously, it's very hard to respect that because there's really no substance there. Even though the Shtraimel and similar Hasidic and Jewish garments are holy and they're beautiful and they're part of a sacred tradition and they represent a unity and a commitment to certain values and they're modest and, and there's tremendous beauty and culture and tradition and, and Messiah and, and, and Kedusha and all of that. But even with a Sefer Torah, you don't substitute the mantala of the Sefer Torah with the Sefer Torah. Every Sefer Torah has a beautiful mantala. It's like a strimal. It feels like a strimal. It's velvet. It's geschmack. We kiss it. We cherish it. But imagine somebody who decorates his whole house with covers of the Sefer Torah, but there's no Sefer Torah inside. Then you're missing the point. The whole point of the cover of the Sefer Torah is to adore the Sefer Torah, to, to, to show beauty for the Sefer Torah, to express the preciousness of the Sefer Torah, not to become a substitute for, for the Sefer Torah. You ask me now how you could become an individual in your community with six children, 
How could you not become an individual in your community with six children? Dream. Dream about what you would like to accomplish with your life. Create the life that you would like to create for yourself. You could learn new things. You can create new things. You can invite interesting people to your home. You can invite guests for Shabbos. You can create movements. You can create organizations. You can touch people. You could learn yourself. You can teach people. You can reach out. There are youngsters all over the place who are craving relationships. You can get involved in Kirov work, Kirov Kroivim, Kirov Rechaikim, secular Jews, religious Jews. You could... You could do extraordinary things with your life. You can create, you can produce, you can write. You can maximize yourself in so many ways. Why do you feel bound by anybody or anything when your soul is infinitely individual? I would say, you know, Mozart, Bach, Beethoven did not have to invent new keys on the piano to demonstrate individuality. (laughs) They can use the same keys like everybody else. But when they played the piano, other compositions came out. When I sit down by the piano, it's like da 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 And others sit down at the same piano, eighty-four keys. How many keys? Eighty-four keys. Brilliant compositions come out. They didn't add new keys. Loy soisif, loy sig. You don't have to add new keys. The keys themselves lend themselves to so many diverse. So many diverse compositions. I'll be able to do more. I'll do, I'll do two more questions and we'll call it a night. Good questions. How long should I stay in a marriage? The women are crying and the men are laughing. What's going on here? I've been in a marriage for many years. I come from a Hasidic family. I married a top boy who was learning in a Litvish yeshiva who comes from a similar background like me. He was very studious and assiduous. He was very serious. Everything was only Torah. It was amazing. He was much more religious than his parents. And I thought, wow, he really takes his Torah so seriously. One day I discovered he simply suffers from very severe depression. How long does somebody stay in a miserable and a difficult marriage? Are there rules? Do I feel, people tell me that divorce is the worst thing, so I'm not doing it because I feel very guilty and I want to be stigmatized. What is the right approach? Listen, you ask, you know, a question, the question of, of, of questions. I'll be, I'll try to be honest, straight, brief, and concise, even though it's a question that, <laughs> You know, we could talk about it for a few years. I, I don't think any responsible person can ever tell a woman or a man to stay married or to get divorced. This is a choice that the people 
who are dealing with the issue have to make themselves. I'm, again, I'm not talking about in a situation where there is danger, where uh, a person is, is physically abusing you, where you're dealing with an unbearable situation, and you need help getting out of the situation, if there's a horrible, horrible situation. I'm talking about in a situation you've been there many years and you're contemplating it yourself. I can't tell somebody to stay married. I can't tell somebody to get divorced. But I will share a few general perspectives. If the person or people are ready to get help, if they're ready to acknowledge that there is a challenge within themselves and in the marriage and they're ready to get help, you have to get best, top, top experts and go for help and follow his or her instructions. And I'm going to say what I said earlier. You have to be an educated consumer when it comes to therapy and healing as well. There are women and men that go into therapy. Some therapists are great. Some therapists are fine. And some therapists are lousy. Sometimes therapists give stupid advice to women and to men. Sometimes a therapist will try to build up a woman and build up her independence because she's codependent. But what they do in the process is they completely emotionally cut her off from her husband and she remains alone in the world with nine children. The therapist is very proud of herself or himself because he gave the woman independence. What did he do? What did he do? He took her away from her deeper values and priorities. Maybe she wants a relationship. You have to help your patient reach their goals, not reach your goals. And when you're, a th- when you're a patient, you have to make sure you're reaching your goals. If after three, four, five, six, seven, eight times, it's not going anywhere. And it's just creating more misery, more pain, more agony, and there's no, there's no light at the end of the tunnel, there's no awareness, there's no awakening, there's no hope being conveyed. It's like a shidduch. Stop the date and go find somebody else. Just because somebody has a degree doesn't mean they're good. Some people with degrees don't know what they're doing. They push it, don't know what they're doing. Just like there's doctors, there's great doctors, there's fine doctors, and there's lousy doctors. And especially doctors, when you tell them you want to ask a second opinion. (laughs) You see their response, like I spoke before. See how they respond, you'll know if it's a good doctor or a great doctor. A lousy doctor, when you say, I'm going to ask a second opinion, he will freak out. My father, Allah Hashem, was once being treated by a doctor, and there was no progress. And my mother tells him, I'm going to ask a second opinion. He says, okay, okay, as though you need one. So she asked the second opinion. The second opinion said, get your husband fast out of his care. So my mother took my father away and he said before, you're going to kill your husband, don't blame me. But as a result, his life was saved. So the moment somebody becomes insecure on your husband, don't trust. So I say be an educated consumer when it comes to healing. If something doesn't feel right, if something doesn't make sense, you don't worship healers. You worship God, not healers. So that's concerning help. Now there's another question. What if he's not ready to get help? What if he's not ready to acknowledge his problems? What if she's not ready to acknowledge? Person has borderline personality, they're not ready to acknowledge it. Person has other challenges, they're not ready to acknowledge it. Person has narcissistic personality disorder, at least there's suspicion that they have it, and you can't walk around on eggshells for the rest of your life. What do you do then? If there's a situation where people are open and honest, then you're dealing with an extraordinary opportunity for a much deeper marriage. Because if a husband and a wife could look at each other and look in the mirror and say, you know what, 
I was clueless, I didn't get it, I have to learn, I have triggers, I'm responding to trauma, these are my issues, we didn't understand each other, then they can have the best marriage ever. Even better than most other marriages because they had to work through their skeletons. The challenge is if you're dealing with a person who's numb or, or dead or lifeless or completely in denial and, and it's just endless pain, does that mean you have to get divorced? What that means is you have to look at the situation very, very clearly and you have to look at two things. What you would call in business the pros and the cons. You have to look at all the pain that this marriage is causing you, but you also have to look at all of the positive values that this marriage is contributing. In other words, divorce doesn't end all misery. It substitutes one life for another life. Now, in some situations, that new life may be much better than the first life. It may be more beneficial. If you have a freaking, if you, I'm sorry, if you have somebody who's a real abuser and is speeding children or never mind doing other things to children, run. Run, no question. If it's not that situation where people's lives are in danger or they're just being ruined and devastated, but it's a difficult situation. You have to look at the pain. You have to also look at the values. There's a value. There's a family. There's some good moments perhaps. Maybe really he or she is an innocent person and they just can't control themselves. It's not malicious. You have to really see what this marriage is doing for you in a positive sense and what this marriage is doing for you in a negative sense. And then you have to ask yourself, are you ready to live with this pain for the sake of the value that this marriage brings to your life or not? Of course, if there are children, the consideration has to be not only your own pain, but also their pain. And the consideration also has to be what the consequences are for them in terms of the value that it brings and in terms of the pain that the marriage brings. On the other hand, I should say, some women are put through a terrible guilt trip for getting divorced. And that's not always the case. Torah legislates divorce for a reason. God acknowledges that sometimes it's the right thing. Not always. In America, sadly, too, too, too often, it's used, we create, in a secular America, they created a culture of divorce, and that's sad. But sometimes, divorce, despite the fact that it's painful, it should only be done in the last, last, last resort when all other options have been experimented with. But to put a woman or a man through terrible guilt for abandoning a marriage is completely unfair, especially when it's coming from yachnas, and idiots who know nothing about the marriage and know nothing about the pain. There are people who have been through 20 years of hell and they finally got out of it and then they have to come and people give them this look like, how can you do this? It's very unfair. Do you know what happened? Were you in the bedroom? Were you those children? Do you know who she was? Do you know who he was? How could you judge somebody? This doesn't mean she made or he made a right decision. Maybe they made a wrong decision. But I can't judge somebody without knowing everything. And sometimes it's a sad but, right decision, amputating a foot, a leg or a hand is not a celebration. You don't throw a party because the doctor amputated both of your legs. But sometimes it saves your life. And if it wouldn't have been amputated, you would have died. A divorce is an amputation. It's painful. It's difficult. It's challenging. Any way you spin it. But it doesn't mean that it was unnecessary or that it was not the right decision. And you should not allow yourself to feel that guilt for the rest of your life that you destroyed your life. You may have saved your life. And the p important thing is to create a brighter future and not to remain in a cycle of violence 
and fighting, which is probably one of the greatest, most important ideas, that even when you divorce somebody, the relationship, as much as possible, has to remain civil and menschlich, especially if there are children. Because for you, she may be just a sick person, or he may be a sick person. But for your children, these are their parents, forever. And when we use our exes as missiles to fire and hurt our ex, it is so damaging. It is such narrow-minded thinking. It is so petty. It's gaining short-term and sacrificing everybody's happiness long-term. I know of a story. There was a man who was extremely wealthy, and uh, he had a a partner who owed him close to $100 million. And he didn't want to pay him the money. And he was in court with this partner for close to $100 million. And this man died. And his inheritance went, of course, to his widow. So she had the opportunity to continue in court and get the $100 million from her husband, who died. But she told this to me. She said that that partner was vicious. And she knew that if she goes to court, she will be in court for 25 years And she may come out with $100 million, which is not so bad for a widow with a bunch of kids. She told me she withdrew it from court completely. She was moichel everything. I say, wow, why did you do it? She said, I had to choose between being 25 years in court and maybe making $100 million, because we were right, or living a life of peace, of serenity, and struggling with finances and raising my children in a normal, healthy, functional home without grudges, without negative energy. That's a wise woman. That's a wise woman. And today I could see the difference. There are people who fight and fight and fight. Again, sometimes there's no choice. Sometimes a situation, you're schlepped to court. But as much as possible, avoid these things like the plague. You win the battle, and you lose the war. And you don't want to lose the war in life. You want to win the war. And sometimes, by winning the battle, you lose the war. There's pain, and you have to deal with your pain. You have to have a good person to help you, because this is painful, and there's a need for revenge. But try never ever to go there, especially when you have, when you have innocent children. Those are some thoughts about this, but really this is a very individual question, and you need some people you trust. Okay, I'm going to do one more question. I'm hoping you'll be able to put an end to what has been a long and arduous journey on my attempt to gain clarity on a battle that takes place within me almost every day. I am 20 years old. I'm an English teacher at a great Jewish school. They say that being a teacher is supposed to be rewarding and fulfilling. Yet somehow I feel as if I'm lacking something. I don't feel I'm supposed to be a teacher. I enjoy my job, I'm good at it, but I don't find the real fulfillment that so many people talk about when you teach. I have been blessed with another great talent. Acting, as far as I can remember. I have always possessed an overwhelming passion and appreciation for acting. I have numerously, I have numerous times lost myself in exercising my talent of I am enthralled by the talent, by the professionalism, and by the glitter of acting. And here is my challenge. 
I come from a very religious, Torah-observant home. None of this is appreciated in our circles. When I graduated seminary, I was told that acting has no place in Judaism. It's all my Yitzhahara, my evil inclination, that's growing stronger and stronger. I want to have a close relationship with God, but I'm very confused about the whole talent thing. I was told that all these talents come from negative places in me. I have to let go of them and just enjoy my teaching job. I thought my passion for everything would maybe go away as I got older, but it remains and it becomes even stronger. So now I'm desperate. Why did God put the idea of entertainment into this world and give these kinds of talents to Jews if it's essentially a non-Jewish thing? Why are Jews blessed with talents that belong to Gentiles? Is my life's goal forever to overcome my passion? To crush my passion? To overcome my desire to develop my skills? Does it make sense to look at it that way? I feel such emptiness in my job now. I don't want to be a teacher for the rest of my life. What am I supposed to do with all these voids, with all this pain, with all these feelings? I've been searching for answer for a year now, for more than a year now. I keep myself, I keep finding myself at a dead end. I find that so many people I speak to about this are simply not sensitive to what I'm going through. You see what people are thinking about, huh? What's Oxto? I have 900 letters like this I still have to answer. I don't even know how I can come close to it. I have to answer by email. I have around 900 letters like this. Every person a different story. I'll tell you. I'll tell you how I see it. I mean, briefly, I'll tell you how I see it. (laughs) There's no such a thing that your talent is a non-Jewish thing. And that it shouldn't have... And it's a curse that you have it and your whole life has to be an exercise in in misery and frustration and and, and suppression. I don't, I don't relate to that. I don't think it's true. I know a Mishnah Pirkei I like bringing sources. The Mishnah says in Pirkei the last Mishnah, we just finished learning it. Whatever God created in the world, He created for divine glory. It says, call everything. It doesn't say besides your talents. Everything besides you. Everybody was created for glory besides you. The Gemara says in Maseches Shabbos, There's nothing in this world that was created in vain. Now, this doesn't mean that the purpose of it is always clear. Sheep, we can eat. Horses, we can't eat. Wasn't created for eating. We can ride on horses. Donkeys, we can be transported on the donkeys as Moshe did with his wife and his children and as Avram Avinu did and as Mashiach will come on a donkey doesn't mean it's for eating Every, everything in the world has a purpose what its purpose is you have to figure out you have to study you have to analyze sometimes the purpose of something is to engage it in one way and sometimes you fulfill its purpose by disengaging from it but everything has purpose everything has meaning Everything exists in you, especially a talent, a gift, has incredibly profound meaning. You shouldn't feel guilty about it and horrible about it. It's part of your light in this world. The Chafetz Chaim once said, it's, we say in the song of Sunday, Shir Shal of Sunday, Hashem 
Lashav Nafshi. Who will come up, who will scale the mountain of God? A person who has clean hands, a pure heart, who did not carry my soul in vain. What does it mean to carry my soul in vain? If somebody has a talent and they don't use it, if somebody has a gift and they don't maximize it, if somebody has a resource and they don't actualize it, what are they doing? They're carrying God's soul in vain. And that's a crime against yourself and against the whole world. The world needs you. The world, the world needs your light. Each of our souls was sent down to this world to light up the world, to make it a better place, a holier place. Each and every one of us is an ambassador of love and of light and of hope. Each and every one of us is a shliach of the Rebbeinu Shalaylam to add wisdom, enlightenment, kindness, goodness, holiness, kedusha to the world. You have incredible talents, which means you're capable of igniting the lives of so many people through your unique individual skills. It's a blessing and it's an opportunity. Yes, as Jews, we have moral boundaries. I can have incredible talents, but I have to have boundaries not to destroy me, to protect me, to allow those talents to actually be used for a longer time in a more safe way for my own benefit. Sometimes when there's no boundaries, it looks more promising. I could do whatever I want. But why don't you go interview a lot of women who are out there in the big world on stage and ask them how their marriages are, how their personal lives are. Remember that a lot of people use us, not always in ways that we can choose. Moral boundaries help you with your talents. They don't destroy your talents. You want to make sure that talents don't come at the expense of priorities, of values. Sometimes in the name of talents we sacrifice what we really, really cherish, and then it's too late to turn the clock back. There was a famous Jewish feminist, I think her name was Gloria Steinem, who said, women need men like fish need bicycles. And this was her way of saying, who needs men? You don't need marriage. So a whole generation was created of women who decided they'll become judges and lawyers and businesswomen and not wives, so they can be free and emancipated. And so many of them, I have heard from them, the clock ticks, and later in life there's a profound sense of loneliness because relationships are not a curse. To, 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 to build a home, to build a beautiful marriage, to build a beautiful family is not a curse probably one of the deepest values that a human soul, and especially a feminine soul, has. So you want to make sure to focus and maintain your boundaries, not to give up your priorities and your values, but there's no need to see it as a contradiction to expressing your talents. What should you do with your talent? One thing I could suggest is, perhaps try to cultivate a plan and a strategy where you can provide people, maybe young women, young girls, with spiritually uplifting entertainment. If you can channel your entertainment skills and use it as a vehicle to inspire people, 
towards towards goodness and towards a relationship with Hashem, it's unbelievable. I know that there are many, many young girls and women today and young women who have tremendous talent and they're craving to express it and they often feel stifled. Imagine a person like yourself with your wisdom and skill would create an opportunity for them to do this in a, in, in a moral, in a beneficial and a productive way and you can have a tremendous impact on your life far more than many other famous actresses who are maybe celebrities in Hollywood, but their life is in shambles emotionally. If you could just interview them or read a little bit about uh, about their lives. Okay, should I do one more? How do I know which derech in Judaism is right? Every rabbi and rebbe says their way in Yiddishkeit is the right way. There are so many communities in the Orthodox world, Hasidus, modern Orthodox, Yeshivish, Litvish, religious Mizrahi. How do I know that I'm on the right track? I'm not even comparing the modern to the ultra Hasidish. Within the Hasidish world or within the from Litvish world, there are so many differences. How is it that everybody claims they're the right path? I was born here, but maybe I need to search for something else. Is there room for individuality? Must I be just like my father? Who will be around in 200 years? Which hat is going to win? The Kipas Ruga, the Barcelino, the Strymel, the Spodek, the Kasket. Which one is going to be around in 200 years? He wants to know who's going to be around 200 years. The Strymel or the Barcelino or the Kipas Ruga? And which one should he choose today? Also, my father tells me Messira is holy. You have to follow the tradition of your father. But what about if I find another path that is more meaningful? When is Messira holy and when is Messira politics? Good questions. People, good questions. Good questions, wow. This really is a long one. This is not... Uh, We're going to stop here. <laughs> Stay tuned. Have a wonderful evening and thank you for coming. Chassidus <laughs> is basically the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov and his students that emphasized certain ideas in Yiddishkeit. They were pre-existing. Chassidus didn't invent a new shit. Chassidus emphasized ideas that were there but they weren't emphasized so much emphasized them, elaborated on them, explained them, accentuated them, and so forth. The opposition to Chassidus. The opposition to Chassidus at the time came from a few factors. Fact number one was, you could see it in the, in the, in the chromim, in the, in the bands that were written. There was Adis that came to him. There were witnesses that came to him and told him stories about Chassidim and how they do and how they behave. And they testified that they're breaking halacha. They're violating halacha. They're violating Shulchan Aruch. And it was a movement that was spreading like wildfire. So the Vilna Gaon was scared that there's going to be another uh, another movement 
another, a new cut, a new cult against Allah. And remember, they were just recovering from the whole Shabsi Tzvi debacle, which happened a hundred years earlier, less than a hundred years earlier, which was a disaster. And it relied a lot on Kabbalah and mysticism, that Shabsi Tzvi and, and his, his spokesman, Nathan of Gaza, Nassan Hazasi, preached. And he felt that it may be another major disaster for Torah and Yiddishkeit. That was one thing. So there was Pashat tremendous. There were there was there were there was this testimony that was brought to him, and you see in the Cherem that he describes things they're doing. That it was obviously there were aiders that came, and uh, and and testified against them. I think that was the, probably the biggest factor. The second factor was Chassidim and Chassidus began to emphasize things that weren't very much focused on before. Started to bring out certain things. And for people for whom they knew Yiddishkeit is vulnerable, and the power of Yiddishkeit was Messiah of the tradition, and it was too different, it was too new, it, it sounded strange. It's like, who speaks this language? So they got very suspicious. And I'm talking here not about, I'm not talking about here the Eid Shekhar, I'm talking here about good people, right? They got very suspicious. It's like, what's the, what's going to be the end of this? Uh, Marshall, uh, the Moshem to focus a lot on passion. Emotion, simcha, avas Hashem, yiras Hashem. He focused a lot on the fact that every neshama is a chelik alekami mal mamish. The fact that in the core all Jews are one. A lot of these types of concepts that the world is enoid mulvada. The world is divine. Which Nefeshachayim struggles a lot with the two sides. Tzimtzum shalaykipshute. Whatever. A lot of inyanim that are very, uh, very powerful stuff. Very intense. So some people felt, you know, Mele Mekobolim are learning this stuff, or, you know, some select few elite. Fine! Let it be. But a mass movement, you talk about these things, what, what, what's going to be the next step? Then they'll change this, then Shabbos will be changed, then this, this issue will be changed. There was a lot of suspicion, a lot of fear. From good people, I think, from good people. Plus, you had, you know, Bali Machloikas. They see a fire, they make sure to pour kerosene. That was the Edis. And I think a combination of that, and it was, it was very successful also. It was like wildfire. It was spreading like crazy, right? It took Poland and Galicia and, and a lot of Russia and parts of Lithuania, not all of the parts of Lithuania and, and, and Russia, and then Hungary. It was just very, very successful. And the Vilna Gaon felt that he has to protect Yiddishkeit. So I think it was based on a tremendous misunderstanding, sometimes coming from very good intentions. But you see clearly that in a few decades, it was all over. Reb Chaim huh? Did I help mention? No, it's not, it doesn't exist anymore. Maybe out of ignorance, not out of seriousness. If there is a machlaikis today, it first of all doesn't exist. And even if it does, very few people, it's out of ignorance. It's not coming out of knowledge. They never met the people. They stereotype them. You hear about a group, you hear three and a half stories about them, and you stereotype them, and then you build a whole philosophy. But if you get to know the people... But today you don't have the machlaikis anymore. You Maybe you'll find three and a half people that take the machlaikis seriously. Really, nobody, nobody drinks wine from Chassidim. Nobody eats their shchita. Nobody stands in their dalaramas. Half families would have to get divorced. Like the guns chedem, half of the families would have to get divorced today. It almost doesn't exist. 
already the Gdolo Lita already changed it right that generation of Chaim Valoshner already was the Bichel of Valoshner and the Tzamech Tzedek yeah we're working Mamashachem Bashachem as close close partners this was Mamash a few decades later and um, and constantly Chavetz Chaim and the Balzerov Reb Chaim Brisk and the Lubavitcher Rebbe the Rashab were mamish, uh, <laughs> very, very tight. Reb Chaim Moiser, Chavetz Chaim, Reb Yitzhak Al-Khonan from, from, from Kovna, Medegere, Reb Avata. And then the Dagut, I mean, it was already, it was, uh, they weren't going to sit. They may have had different, there were different Messiahs, this one emphasized this, one emphasized this, no question. The Chassidim emphasized and taught the ideas of Chassidim from the Baal The literature didn't, fine, but it wasn't any more a... Um, a fundamental machloikas in, 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 in essence. Different approach. Just like you have Nusach Svard, Nusach Ashkenaz. You understand? You have different Minhagim. You have so Minhagim everywhere. People who eat Gebrakt, people who don't eat Gebrakt. So what? People who are Machman, this. People who are not Machman, this. People who have this Kula, this Kula. But they didn't see it anymore as a substantial machloikas. They saw it more as a cosmetic machloikas. You understand the difference? It's very different. Yeah. 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 You know the Balatanya went to visit the Vilnagon. Rabbi Yosheber Soloveitchik used to say the Balatanya and Rabbi Mendel went to visit the Vilnagon in Vilna. They, they Pashid wanted to go and speak to him. The Balatanya felt that if he would have a conversation with the Gon, it would all be over. Ois. Well, Tanya's Ga'inus and Nigla was, was Lahafli. They called them by his Ba Mitzvah Rav Tano Opolik. That's what they said it is Ba Mitzvah Rav Tano Opolik. It was in Bahafli of a fella, and he felt, and Rabbi Mendel Haradaka was also a big gone, with he would have one conversation, it would all be over. Because the would ask them the questions, he would see where they're coming from, everything has a source, but he didn't, uh, because they, they fed so much Lashon Hara, even Yisrael. It's one of the sad things of history. And he didn't want to see them. And that was it. There's different Nuschayas, but the bottom line is it never happened. Whatever the reason was, it never happened. Uh, and that was that. They were... Nah, yeah, the Magad. The first Chedim was, I think, the year Tovkuf Lamad Beis. This was 12 years after the Baal Tov passed away. Ah, that's a good question. Why the Baal Tov Dafka in that generation? For four reasons. Three reasons, basically. One reason was the physical matzav of the Jewish people was was mummish in the erd. It was in the it was besie besie how you read. Remember that tachvatat sixteen forty eight sixteen forty nine, which is just fifty years before the Baal was born. Bogdan Chmolanetsky, Yamachshemay, and the Cossacks massacred close to three hundred thousand Jews. After the Holocaust, it's not a big number, but you have to understand since Churban Bayesheni. 
There was no such churban like this. It was it, it destroyed Poland, Ukraine. It was shreklech what happens there. They were killed and the way they were killed, that's number one. Number two, a few decades after was the Shapsi Tzvi, which killed the Jews spiritually. It was almost a fatal blow to the morale. Hundreds of communities believed that he's Mashiach. And when he converted to Islam, it was, he, he converted to Islam to save his life. They offered the Sultan of Turkey, he was in Turkey, Izmir. He offered him either Islam or he chops off his head. So he converted to Islam. So imagine Mashiach, they sold their homes in Turkey, they leased all the boats to take them to Israel. And, uh, and, uh, and as a result of that, uh, the demoralization of the Jews was Sheklach. A third component was completely on another level. The Enlightenment began. The Haskalah began in Western Europe and then it traveled to Eastern Europe. And that killed religion from another angle. The Enlightenment destroyed the church, Christianity. And in the process it also destroyed Judaism from a different angle. So the whole Yiddish guide was now facing a Sakana which would prove to be another major fatal blow. The Haskalah. And the fourth component, which was connected to all of this, was the internal mood in the Jewish world was Tzubrachim. And the division in communities and the division between Talmud Chachamim and Anashim Pshutim. There was just a tremendous uh, dryness and despair and hopelessness in the Jewish world communally and individually. There were G'daylim, there were G'daylatet, Talmud Chachamim, but there was a, a certain brokenness. Basically, the Gullahs got to the Jewish people. The Gullahs got to the Jewish people. So the Tzanzer of others says that the Baal Shem Tov put in a little bit of the Ur of Mashiach he put into the world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there are some people who thought that the Baal Shem Tov was just a shita to be makar of simple people, to be nice to simple people. People used to look at simple Jews and say, eh, it's nothing. And he said, no, you don't understand the kayach of Tehillim and of saying Amen and of giving stokka and of singing a nigin and of talking to Hashem and kukuriku and achman alibabai. So the Balshamtav was like, you know, a, a nice man who understood farmers and, and peasants and chickens and cows and milking cows and, and kretchmas. And he was as a vademe, vademeyid who went around and, you know, and he said lechayim and he gang in a tensel. And, and that was his contribution. But the truth is that this is, uh, this comes from historians who know nothing about Chassidus of the Baal Shem Tov. Because the Chevraya Kaddish of the Baal Shem Tov were Go'inei The Magid of Mizrich himself was a Go'inei In Nigla Pashat. The Toldus Yaakov Yosef. The Balatanya was one of the greatest Go'inim in all the Doiris. He had the Balafla, the Sefer Amar of Shmelkov Niklishburg. The Baditchev himself, his Baditchev is known as a fire. He was a gun. He was the Rav of huge Kehillas. Pinsk, Baditchev. These were, these were Av, but Av Bezdins. Dayonim, Rosh Hashivas. They were huge Goinim. What were they attracted to, uh, to tell me that if I milk my cow and I say, Baruch Hashem, Geloib da Eberstad, the Kiyot, Gegeb Milch. So all the Malachim start dancing. It wasn't, it wasn't, uh, the Pshat is that the Balshamtov was Megala, he was Megala. He brought out a shit in Yiddishkeit. He brought out an akut, an akutus in Yiddishkeit that were amuk, 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 ma'id. Sayyantaris and Nikola, Sayyantaris and Nister. But Derech Memela, there was a new dignity by the Anashim Pshutim. But there was Megala, the, the muhus, the muhus of Torah, the neshama of Torah, the neshama, the sos, in Zoyer it says that in everything there's sosim and galia. There's the hidden and there's the revealed. In a Jew, there's sosim and galia. Zoyer Baloischa. 
There's the sosim of a Jew, the hidden part of the Jew, and the galia of the Jew, the revealed part of the Jew. In Torah, there's sosim and galia, and in Kuchibrichu, there's sosim and galia. So the Baal Shem Tov, you could say, started to speak about and be megala, the sosim of a Jew, the sosim of Torah, and the sosim of Kuchibrichu, and the sosim of the world. But Mela, everything got lit up with a new type of light, but it was, it was a shita mukamoid. Created a lot of leaders. That's part of it. That's part of it. There were so many different branches also. You're right. You can't compare uh, the shit of the Balatanya to other shit. I mean, it's all. But there's usually, you're right, so many, but there's usually a common denominator you could sense in all the svarim that come from the Heichel Abal There's usually a certain common denominator. Yeah, usually. You could sense. Not always, but usually there's a Tzad HaShavah that pervades all Sifrich Siddhas from the Svas Emes to the Be'er Mayim Chayim, from the Moir V'Shemesh to the Avedis Yisrael, from Moir HaMeir to the Tanya. Huh? From Yismach Moshe. What? Even in his derech, it's a breast of a derech. It's not. Uh, it's not like Dusha Slavi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Well, the Balatanya developed a whole shit in Chizidus. He wrote in the, he wrote the encyclopedia of Chizidus. That was Tanya. All Sifri Chizidus were basically on the Parsha. You open a Dusha Slavi, right, or a Noyem Alimelech, or of Svasemis in later generations. So it's on the parsha of Vart on Bereshis, of Vart on Noach, of Vart on Pesach. The 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 Toldus Yaakov Yosef, even the first sefer Magidvar of Liyakov, they're vertlich on the parsha. The first sefer that was written not on the parsha was written as a systematic presentation. What is the shit of Chesedus? It was a Tanya. It was written lechatchila as an encyclopedic. Huh? Nein, nishta brev. Nein, kishibin a sefer nishtaftem parsha to explain what is the shit of Chesedus and avoidus Hashem. What is it? So to speak, the Shulchan Aruch, you have a Shulchan Aruch to know how to live in Nigla, so to speak, the Shulchan Aruch of the life of, of, of Chesedus. So it was the a whole different debt, a whole different Mahalach. He focused very much on that. You need teachers for Chesedus. You need, you, just like you need a teacher for Gemari, you need a teacher for Chesedus. Right, you're right, you're right. You want to know what's the difference between Chesidus and the Maharal, or Chesidus and the Nefesh HaChayim, or Chesidus and Leshem Shvay V'Achlamah? Chavis HaLavavis, or Shari Tshuva, or Chesadikim, or Mesilis Yisharim, or Svarim of the Ramchal. That's what he asked. Even the Svarim of Nistar. So if you learn, if you learn well all the Svarim, you'll see that this... Ah. Okay. To you. You'll see that there's certain Nekudas and Mahalchem that the Baal Shem Tev and his students accentuated and brought out that you don't have so much in other Svarim. Even in the Ramchal. Even Klach Pischechachma and Das Tvunas and Sefer Avikuach. All in Yonam of Chesidus you could find before. 
everything is in Gemara and in Bavli and Yerushalmi and Medrash. There's no word from the Baal Shem Tov or from his Talmidim that you won't find in Torah. As the Yerushalmi says, in Megillah, Right? So if it's Torah, you're going to find it. You'll find it in Tanakh, you'll find it in Bavli, you'll find it in Shami, you'll find it in Medrash, you'll find it in Halachi, you'll find it, as you say, in Sifri Musa and Sifri Makshava. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about accentuating it, emphasizing it, Megala, elaborating, not, not inventing. It wasn't invented. Bring it, bring it out, elaborate certain Nekudas. The Nekudas of Achtos Hashem. That everything is an expression of Hashem. This you find in Sifri Chzidus. Shaloi Berich more than others. The Maharal is Azai. The Maharal, the Yisoyed of a lot of Chzidus comes from the Maharal, there's no question. The Tanya says, So the Messiah is that Sfarim meant the Maharal and the Shaloh, and Soifrim, he meant the Baal Shem Tov in the market. So there's no question. The Shalom also. Tremendous amounts of Yisraelis, of Chassidus, you'll see in the Maral and the Shalom. But in Chassidus, it was brought out with a certain language, with a certain Hasbara, with a certain Arichis, and with, maybe most important, with an application to practical life that you won't find in the Maral and the Shalom. You understand what I'm saying? Say the Hasbara, say the Harchava, and the, the application, yeah, it's like a certain approach, an approach to life, a certain approach to Torah Sanefer, psychological life, the emotional life, the practical life, very, very heavily. But you'll have tremendous amount of you say this, of this in the Shalom and the Maral. Doesn't mean that there's one God. It means that Hashem is the only Mitzvah. That says in the Shalom. Officially, the Baal Shem Tov said it, constantly. But the Shalah says it. Shalah says it once. It says it in a few lines. The Chassidus turned it into a ganze mapecha. The Kayotza baza. On a Shoma. On a Shoma is a chelik alakami mal. Klayoka says it. The Ramban says. Yeah, the Ramban says it. Rishis Chachma says it 20 times. The Rizal says it probably 25 times. Rishis Chachma says it. Uh, probably 30 times. Shalom probably says it 90 times. That an Hashem is a chelik alakami mal. The Ramban is not the Lashen, but it's not the Kala Neifeyach, Me'atzmusay Neifeyach, V'humi Mal, it's not the Lashen. The Ramban is not the Lashen, after Pasek. In Kabbalah, it's already a Yisoyed. In Kabbalah's form, you have it much more. Right? But the Milo of an Hashemah, in Chassidus, it became a huge Sugya. You're not going to find it before? Of course you'll find it before. And you'll find it in Hashemah also. But it'll become a, a huge, a huge Sugya. Now, Lamashal, the Nefesh Hachayim will emphasize that Achtus Hashem, the real Achtus Hashem on that level, has to remain above. It has to remain mysterious. In Nigla, you shouldn't mix it. The is very much into the, the Chayla that has to remain above. In Chesidus, the Hadgasha was not like that. Chesidus, the Hadgasha was not that. Achtus Hashem has to inform life. So the, when, when you learn well, you see that this. Uh, how do you apply that? No, I'm saying, is, is, is that I'll mean, tell you what Rabbi told me. I'll tell you what Rabbi, what Rabbi Moshe Shapiro yeah, He knew well Sifri uh, Hagra. He knew well Sifri Hagra. But also the Maharal. Rabbi Tzadik, So uh, his last year I heard, it was here in Monsi. He came for treatments. 
and uh, he was here the Shabbos before Rosh Hashanah, or the, the Shabbos before Slichas, or the Shabbos Slichas. He davened in Baruch Shul, a little Shul, so Shalosh Shul does they asked him to speak. So he spoke for a very long time, and it was his la- it turned out his last year. So Mitzray Shabbos, there was a private Malav Amalk in somebody's house, so the person invited me. So we had a very long Shmuz. So he told me, Moshe told me, that when he wants to experience Tam Gan Eden, so he goes into a room, he locks the door, he opens a Lakuta Teir of the Balatanya, and he sits on it for hours, Unez in Gan Eden. So I asked him, what's the... He told this to me clearly, he said it to me, I heard from his mouth. He says, ah, Gan Eden. Huh? He was Echta Litvak, yeah. So, no, I mean, it's not, uh, there's no machleikas today. I'm telling you, it's, 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 it's an old machleikas. I forgot the machleikas. And there's no machleikas. Who's not going to learn the Balatanya because uh, machleikas of the Grah doesn't exist? You know one person who doesn't quote the Baditshiva? I'm asking you. There's no machleikas. It's a few cultural differences. This type of hat, that type of hat, Nagdishach Nakadish. So, I mean, what's that? That's the Machlaikas? Kesser, no Kesser. I mean, what's the Machlaikas? There's no Machlaikas. There's somebody who says, huh? I'm saying there's no Machlaikas today. I don't see a Machlaikas today. Maybe there's three and a half people who hold on to Machlaikas, but nobody knows them. They're somewhere in basements, maybe. No respected Rav or Shashiva today would even speak like this. You hear one person say it. So that's Sachlit Rashid Shashivas. Oh, so I asked Rabbi Shapiro, I told him that some of his Talmidim told me in his name that there was no Machlaik. In Shari Yechidvim, one of the Balatanya discusses the Shitta of some Kabbalim that Simpson was Kipshutai. Darizal holds, Darizal says that before Bria Sa'ilam, Hashem had to be mitzamtzim, the Ein Soif, to be able to create space for the world. Because Ein Soif is the everything. Ein Soif is infinite. So there had to be what's called tzimtzum, withdrawal. Tzimtzum, Ein Soif, and he left a cholol, an empty space. This Arizal says in Eitz Chaim, and in a few places. So there was a big machlekes, what's pshat in this tzimtzum? Is it kipshutai or shaloi kipshutai? So the Balatanya and Tanya and Shari Yechidum and the Zion has a huge harichis, it's a huge peri, that of course it's shaloi kipshutai, and it's a big mistake, those who thought that the tzimtzum is kipshutai. That the Ein Soif is mamale, the world, just like it was before creation, there's no difference, it's only a chilek of halam and gilu, etc. So, uh, officially, one of the bar pluktas, the other side, was Shittas Hagra. Shittas Hagra, in his Pirush and Sifra on the Zohar, he has a Pirush and Sifra Ditzniyasa, is the mashmoz that tzimtzum is kipshutai. But there are those who say that it's not a real machlaikas. So they quoted Moshe Peres, I asked them. If that's true that he said that, because so he said, no, there is a machlaikas. Of course there's a machlaikas if Tzimtzum was literal or not literal. So I asked him, <laughs> which comes down to the question of Shachayim Osa, L'mayin this tzad or that tzad. Practically. I don't mean L'mayin in in, in Hasboris in this. So, so he claimed that one of the differences, very, very, very profound idea, that it boils down to the following question. The question is, very, very deep. If the ultimate path to Hashem, to Kedusha, to Telukos, to Kedush Baruch Hu, if it requires precious 
or not precious. Meaning, if you say that Kevayachal, the Ein Saif, is not in this world, there's a Muslim, some of them, Kabbalim, that it's like the king who looks out of the palace and he sees the garbage dump. But he's not in the garbage dump. He sees it, he supervises it, he's in control of it, but he's not in the ashpa. he's not in the garbage dump. He sits in the palace and he looks at it. That's Timsum. If you say that, it means that Sof Kol Sof, this world, is a trefa place. What do I mean a trefa place? It's not, it's not the place where truth is. The more precious, the more you could segregate yourself, the more you could disengage from Olam Haza and all of its expressions, the closer you can get to the world of Ein Saif. If you say Tzimtzum is not Kipshutai, so then Einoid Mulvadai, so that in the world itself, you can, you could find a Lakos. This also expresses itself. Right. Okay, so that's an old stir. So in other words, one shit is mad more the precious from the world. And one shit is no, we can ufeb in the ganze Welt. The whole world, the last is lies by the Dirbatachtainim. I told him, he got excited. Yeah, Dirbatachtainim, look at the Taira. Nisht hecher, nisht hecher. But that there's no stir that ultimately the tachlis of Avoida is to be megala, elakus, godliness in everything and everywhere. It also comes into the person himself. In other words, how do you deal with yourself? One derech is, the more you can go away from your individuality and be mevatel yourself, be mevatel yourself to Torah, so the more holy you become. And the other derech is, no, every nekuda in you could be, could be utilized, could be, could be embraced. That's detail. That's details in avoida where you are, yeah. Like the Gemara says, you tell a nazir, right? Don't get close to the vineyard. You have to know where you are. Is nedarim is a good thing? Of nedarim is not a good thing. Don't be neider or nedarim precious. So that's different matzavim where a person is. If somebody is addicted to food, and this. It wasn't. It was a not. It was a, when Rebbe said Miyamai loyne hanesi. I feel the expectana. Pshat is it wasn't a, 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 a egotistical ana. That gufa. Yeah. Yeah. Al derech A person eats carbonus, right? It's it's mishulchan gavoya kazachalai. Rashi says in Beitzer, you're sitting at shulchan amelech. You're a guest of Hashem. So there's two types of eating. So I asked Reb Moshe, what, what other nafkamin is between the two symptoms? He says, Das is This is enough revolutionary. Two mahalchim of how to, how to look at the world. It's a whole question. Do you elevate the world? Or do you run away from the world? Do you elevate your talents? Or do you run from your talents? Do you try to go to heaven as much as possible? Or no, you wanna, you wanna connect heaven and earth. It's, it's huge nafkamin is an avoida. And there's an Indian of Elo Velo Devrel Kimchayim, and it comes out in so many different ways. It branches off in millions of little, little ways. What your relationship to work is, what your relationship to business is, your relationship to money, your relationship to the world, Bechlal, your relationship to individuality, to talents. It's also, uh, I would say very much probably why Derech HaVashem Tevuz Madgish Simcha so much. What's the Indian of Simcha? Huh? No, but why, what's, what's the idea of Simcha? 
In other words, if, if, if you tell a person, for the rest of your life, you have to be an Evid. An Evid. But by being an Evid for 90 years, you're going to get a Lamhaba. And if you're Zoycha, you find tremendous Geshmak in what you're doing. But the Nekudah is Avdus. The Nekudah is servitude. And then you'll get a Lamhaba. So Sof Kol Sof, unless you're on a very high Madrega, there's, there, could be, there could be a certain pain, a certain Fakvechkeit. Loy de Balshemtev, who was Madgir Zinyan of Einoid Mulvada, so it's not an Indian of Avdus, it's an Indian of self-expression. It's an Indian of Achdus, not Avdus. So then it's a whole, it's, it's, a, it's a different Hadgosha. So these are some Yisoydas that he, that he brought out a lot. Same is true with Achdus Yisrael. One touch in Achdus Yisrael is, you have big differences between Jews. Here's a Rosh Hashiv, here's a Gon Oilam, and here's a Pashta farmer. Elamai, but Avzayin a mensch, you have to be a mensch, you have to be nice, it's part of Chesed, it's part of this. So sometimes it could be a little superficial. I'm not talking about by big neshamas, but sometimes by people who are not so big. In a chaname, in a chaname. But if you're madgish, if, if the Baal was madgish that all Yidna mamish won, and the Nekuda Ha'atzma is the Talmud Chachem, and the Pashat child is mamish the same Chelek HaLekamal, even though there's differences in Lamdas and in this, so then there's, there's, a, there's a, the hair of Achtos in, in a more natural, organic way. But this is all in the original shit, is the way they developed. Yeah. This is the Nukudah Reb Moshe Shapiro. Uh, we had a conversation. This was, uh, it was his last year. His last year. He never gave a year after. He passed away a few months later. When did he pass away? Last year? Yeah, two years ago. This was the, Rish, the Shabbos before Rosh Hashanah, before he passed away. Did I answer your question a little bit? Or no? Not, a, not completely? Okay. First base is Merchot. Does it go in the Shaila, no? It wasn't the Shaila. Sof kol sof. If something is Torah, it comes back to the same Nakuda. <laughs> if something is real Torah, it can't not come back to the same Nakuda. <laughs> you understand? That's a klal. The Shaila is, in one Nakuda itself, there could be a lot of different manifestations. The Gemara is like the Chagiga, yeah? You have this Tzad and this Tzad. So there's an Nakuda of Achtos and everything. That means Beishamai, Beishilil. It comes back to one Nakuda. But from one Nakuda, there could be a lot of different, different manifestations. But ultimately, real Torah always comes back to one Nakuda. Now, you can't compare Pshat Rashi's Pirosham Chumash, yeah? Right? To the Ramban's Pirosh, to the Klayokor, to the Erechayim, to the Toldus Yaakov Yosef, to the Noyam Elimelech, to the Arizal's Pirosham Chumash. Rashi explains to you a Maisa with, with, uh, with the Gar Pashit, and the Arizal, suddenly the whole Maisa is Alder Chasod. So, so what is it? They're contradicting? The Pshat is, it's all one Akuda, but there's different layers. There's layers of Yiddishkeit, and they're all MS. First place was a Chazog. So there's no Stid in Mohus. If it's Teira, the Nakuda is Achtos, Achtos. Nakuda is Achtos from Atmos and Saif Baruchum in the Welt. No, not only V, not only V, what you're madgish, 
and Even in the Musa world, take the Musa world, yeah, you know how many differences there were? So given the Slabotka Derech, Ein Derech, and the Navardika Derech. So given the Alta von Kalam. Avada, the Gemara is like Talmide Bishamayu Basilo, Shalai Shibshu called Sarchon. I'm all given a grace of Machlaikas. In Zoyhar state that it all started when Moshe hit the rock. If Moshe would have spoken to the rock, it wouldn't have happened. Because he hit the rock, so Kepatish, he fights at Selah, Satan, Tikkun, Zoyar, Gavar, and Alakushis, and Aboyas, and Machlaikas, and Tiyuftas, and Teikus, and Raminus, and Pirukim, and us, Alts from the Moshe hitting the rock. Azesh, Satan, Tikkun, Zoyar. Magala Mukazot, Haloi, Koi, Dvorai, Kaesh, Naum Hashem, or Kepatish, he fights at Selah. So the Dvorai is Kaesh, so ain't fire. But Kefatish, you fight the Sela, Moshe, the Shlog in the Sela, Patish, as I think, Begamatri, Yamate, Moshe, so you fight the Sela, so you have Torah everywhere, and everybody gets a little piece, and together you work it through, and you get back the whole picture. <laughs> That's why you need all the Machlaikasen. You need Bishami, you need Basili, you need a Bishmar, a Bakivar, a Yehuda, a Meir, you need all the Machlaikasen. Because every one is a piece of the rock. If you, if you ignore that shit, then you're ignoring the part, you're not going to get back the rock. That's Davoidus Habirurim. No, no, the question is when some, sometimes people choose to go a little bit away from their father's Messiah and the fathers get very upset. Yeah, people who feel a void, they feel a void and you can't force a person and say you have to stay here, that's not Judaism. Kabbadis of Ichavah is not which yeshiva to learn it. Kibudav, there's a Shochanarch Yeridei and Simonei Shmem. If your father tells you don't go learn, you don't have to be Mechabadav. For that and a Shidduch. Why? Because that's not Kibudav. Kibudav is respecting the father, his needs. Don't sit in his seat. Don't give him to food. Like the Gemara says in Kedushan, give him to eat, give him to drink, give him to dress. If he needs help, v'chuli. But Kibudav doesn't mean that if my father wants me not to get my inspiration. <laughs> Kibudav doesn't mean my father doesn't want me to eat, I shouldn't eat. <laughs> It's not kibudav. If I can't, it's embarrassing if that's what a father wants. <laughs> well, listen. Alech sidim from the erstedoyres of an abgalos datatus. That's a fact. Fathers today scream mesoyda, 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 mesoyda. The only reason this chiddus is because they left their fathers. If they would have stayed by their fathers, they wouldn't have been right. The fathers didn't go to the balshamtiv, the magid. To all these people, so they all left their fathers. Huh? Okay, sometimes it was, but even in Nishkish Logan, I mean. Huh? It doesn't mean. It's a Your father says, I don't want you to marry this girl. You want to marry this girl. You don't have to listen. I don't want you to go learn Torah in this yeshiva. These are Yonim. It's, it's always better if your father agrees. It's Geshmaken. And you're never allowed to embarrass your father. You're never allowed to embarrass your father. You never allowed to disrespect your father. But kibudav doesn't mean if I need these vitamins for my soul. And my father says, for me it wasn't, it was enough without it. Baruch Hashem, for you it was enough. I need vitamin, I need vitamin B. What should I tell I need vitamin B. So it was a, what? Fakert, a smart father who understands, appreciates that his, if your son has to change stuff, it's better that he goes this way than that way, right?
I don't see what the embarrassment. If somebody wants to be zechmeschazek more in avodas Hashem, so the father learns a mishnah a day, and he learns three blata a day, so it's an embarrassment. No. Well, you have to look if it's an embarrassment. Tayyida's opinion. So the Ashul Khanaruch of the Welt. No, it's not. If I disagree with you and you tell me, oh, you're embarrassing me, I'll say, I'm sorry, I apologize, but I'm not embarrassing you in public. It's not up to them. If a person is never emotionally ill, fine. But call it emotional illness. Don't call it... You understand what I'm saying? Now in Shulchan Aruch, there's halachas, how to disagree with your father. Itaka says you shouldn't be soysed as devout. If you don't say your father, you're acting against halacha. You ask him a question. Abba does There's a way of communicating with a father respectfully. But chas v'shalom to say kibud of means I know the halacha is different. And I say the wrong thing because my father says differently. You're not allowed to. If your father has a shitta in halacha. And you know and you know he's making a mistake. You're not allowed to listen to him. It's not kibud of. If I care, it's heipach kibudov. L'fnayivalei sitem mechshel. You're being mechshel. Kibudov has gedarim. Kibudov doesn't mean whatever my father says, I do it. What if your father's against your shidduch? And what if you want to send your kids to a different school because they need it and your father says no? So kibudov is not to. Not to do what your kids need. It's a shnarish kind. It's against halacha this. You have chuvas about this. There's a maram shik. There's a, there's a sugi in Yavom Mizdavav, a rajbim, a a famous Maram Sheik, a Truvis Rajdam. There's a famous Truva of Rajdam. He says, even to change the Nusach of your father's davening is not a problem. It's not al Simach. Even the Nusach, the Messiah of his davening, he says, it's not a problem. Huh? I see a blue shirt, a gray jacket. Are you an individual? Are you an individual? <laughs> You're embarrassing? Your embarrassment? So maybe try this. Is this nice? <laughs> but Thursday night. Thursday night. What should I tell you? What am I supposed to tell you? If this is an embarrassment for the Mishpacha Halavai, everybody would embarrass the Mishpacha like you. What should I tell you? I don't know. But I'm not Bekant. I... Listen, levushim are a beautiful thing, and when there's a mesayrin, a mishpacha, a kelet, a real levushim, it's a beautiful thing to continue. And the question is, why are you changing the levushim? Is it coming from weakness? Is it coming from strength? A lot of times, the people who are taking off levushim, it's because not the levush. It's because they 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 have a. It's not the mele the levush. Sometimes it's other stuff going on. So you have to always see what is it. It's because I'm coming closer to Hashem, or I'm coming a little further because I want to throw away Yiddishkeit. I want to come closer to Yiddishkeit. That's number one, you have to know. Whatever, das, das is, das is, is it a nice thing? Of course it's a nice thing. To say this is ganz Yiddishkeit, come on. Kibbut Av has nothing to do with dressing. If somebody you you answer Shilas, if somebody comes to you and says, "Is this kibudav?" You're saying if your father says that, well, you putting on a blue shirt is embarrassing me. So mitzad kibudav, are you mechuyev to change it? I would say, 
I don't know. Yeah, you have to ask your poisek about this. <laughs> Tell your father to come to some shiurim here. I want to know how deep their relationship is. It's only about a blue shirt. Oh, is there a relationship? I doubt the problem is the blue shirt. The problem is the blue the white shirt, that's what he says. If he puts on the white shirt, everything will be good. Look like him. He's not an embarrassment. He's an embarrassment for other reasons. Huh? There's a guy, a, 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 a younger man who told me. It's a younger man who told me like this. He's one of 14 from a very famous Chesedish neighborhood. And he somewhat, he's an Erlichiyid, but he left uh, the tradition of the family, the clothes and the style and so forth. And they have groups from mothers whose children went over the derech. So his mother is part of that group. Even though his, his, her son is from, but it's a different mahalach, he's a little young. And one week, she had to speak, she had to give the speech of Chizuk. So who did she call to find out what to say? She called the son. <laughs> she said, I have to speak to all the mothers about kids who went over the derech. Could you tell me what to say to give them chizuk and inspiration? And he told her what to say. And she didn't even realize. <laughs> She's calling him to tell her how to be mechazek, the mothers. You understand? So Zainazai, but I'm saying, I found it quite interesting. No, no, he's saying you have a 14-year-old, he has a certain fashion style, and he's crushed and denigrated and cursed. And he's, and he's, and it basically, instead of embracing him and working with him, you force him, you force him out, and then, huh? What? You push, you, you make, you make him, you make him, you make him feel unwanted. And he has no choice almost. That's what you're saying. Can I share a story with you? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Yishikoychacha. I don't know what the biggest it's a heart of a generation. I don't have that. Uh, I don't have my finger on the pulse of the universe to be able to say what's the biggest Yitzhahara. What I, what I would say, one of the bigger Yitzhaharas, I think, is the. And also my spot. Option, yeah. I would say the feeling that so many people have that uh, they're worthless. And and not realizing how close to Hashem they are and uh, how deep Hashem believes in them and wants them to be conduits for Him. That's what I think is one of the top uh, Yitzharas. Ah? If it has to do with that? Because I personally think, like, I'm the community I'm in, I'm a teen, I can go to school there, and 
like that's the most long of the bikes type of car. Every one there has social media, right? I think that if you're in the world, everybody is. Bro. You live there? You live in Tampa? No, no, no we, we live in Los We live in Los I, I go to school. Go oh. To, so, um, Where? I go to TABC. So, it's a good school, no? I, I love it. But um, seeing everybody around me that's you know, always on the phone and social media and stuff like that, and I personally... You're saying it creates depression. Well, that even that even secular non-Jewish sources say that this excess of social media creates depression because people are not interacting socially and they don't have friends and everything is like on Facebook and you don't. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.